Well, hello there. <laughs> you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for the top movies of the year. And normally we see and we discuss one movie they have it on. in depth. Uh, we get pretty hot and heavy with spoiler talk, but because we're normally assuming that if you're listening, you've seen the movie too, but we're not doing that this episode. This is a spoiler-free podcast in which we're going to tell you about our favorite movies of the year. Now, my name is Tom Chick. I am joined by Christian uh, Mulekowski. Uh, that's close, but you could just refer to me as Robert for this podcast. <laughs> and Kelly Wand, who maybe has a tagline for us for the entire year. Kelly Wand, is there any such tagline? Yeah, uh, I was watching Urban Cowboy uh, baked earlier this week, and I had a cool idea for um, a John Travolta bookend movie to Urban Cowboy, except instead of city dudes riding mechanical bulls, it's called Country Slicker, and it's like Wyoming hicks get together at bars, but they wear suits, and they say shit like, these biotech stocks are really screwing up my portfolio, y'all. And that's the tagline for 2011. You heard it straight from Kelly Wand. Now, you know, yeah, I just want to say I like you guys, and I like not having to write an office for a week and not seeing a movie. <laughs> That's all stuff I don't like doing. But I hate these uh, top ten casts. I hate the rules. I hate the restrictions like wearing tuxedos. There's too much math, and I have no idea what anyone would want to hear what my ten favorite movies are that came first, out of me. First of all, Kelly Wan, you look fantastic in your tuxedo, if I may say. Uh, second of all, there are no rules. I've taken care of all the yeah. math for us. I'll explain that in a second, though. But... Before we start, Dingus, can you tell us, without giving away any spoilers or anything, just very briefly, uh, what year was it this year? Um, yeah, I take it all back. This is really interesting stuff. Um, I'm sorry I said what I said. Kelly Wand, I just missed your heart. <laughs> oh. Oh, so predictable. So predictable. Uh, all right, well, Dingus, in that case, I'll just skip ahead to the business portion of the podcast where I'm now going to tell you guys the highest-grossing movies of 2011 in order. Here we go. The eighth Harry Potter movie, number one. The third Transformers movie, number two. The fourth Twilight movie, number three. So none of us have seen any of the top three that I know. Correct. Hold on to your hat, though, Kelly Wand, because the fourth highest-grossing movie of the year the second Hangover movie. We all saw that one. Uh, going down to number five, the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Those are the five highest grossing movies of 2011. So America has spoken. We, and I, I think I... Yeah, go ahead, Kelly Wand. They disagree with us, apparently. They didn't give a shit what we said. They picked five movies we didn't give a shit about. And went, this, this is acceptable. Well, Kelly Wand, now it is our turn to speak. Uh, we have each compiled a list of our ten favorite movies in order. Uh, and just to give you a brief insight into the methodology, not that you care, but just to explain what we're going to do, uh, our lists were each scored with 10 points for the number one choice, nine for the number two, and so on, down to one point for the number 10. Now, the scores for each movie were totaled, and while the final score is not important, uh, we're using it to determine the order in which we discuss each movie and, and why we liked it. Uh, again, spoiler-free. So uh, we hope you'll listen, even if you haven't seen every movie that came out this year, like we kind of like to think that we did. Uh, I'm did. sure. 
At least Dingus and I. I you know what? I didn't see every movie, but I, I felt last year I felt like I was scrambling a lot to catch up with everything. This year I uh, I got the luxury of rewatching a lot of the movies uh, that I wanted to put on my list. Um, so, I just went. Well, I didn't. My list of stuff that I felt like would have been on the list if I'd seen it is longer than my real list. And instead of doing what you did, I just went. Well, instead of watching uh, the artist, I'll just uh, put bridesmaids on. <laughs> Uh, and also, I should point out, these were movies released in the U.S. in 2011, oh, theatrically, geez. on DV, DVD or uh, video on demand. Uh, Kelly Wan tried to put at the very top of his list a movie that was filmed in 2006, screened at various film festivals in 2008, and finally had a DVD release in the U.S. in 2010. That's what Kelly Wan wanted to put in his number one spot. Uh, that's from 06? Because I was going to mock you like, oh, a couple months, and I don't get to put like Mungo on my number one, which I was Correct. really excited about. Lake Mungo was shot in Australia, I believe, in 2006. They had, you know, they didn't quite know what to do with it. I don't think it ever got a large theatrical release. It hit uh, film festivals in 2008. Uh, it sort of spread slowly. Finally hit the U.S. on DVD. And, and here's our one that. chance to champion this obscure movie. And now, because it was made five years ago, because it was obscure. Tough shit, Kelly Wan. He was so pissed that, uh, that he forgot that Fish Tank was from... I'm pissed about that too. I'm incompetent. I'm not debating that. I'm just He's saying. He's not going to let that happen again. <laughs> well, my competence, my incompetence should trump Tom's uh, stingy rulesness about things being made five years ago. <laughs> so that's the point of the list, though, Kelly Wan. These are just movies that came out in 2011. Now, if you want to talk Lake Mungo, we've certainly championed it on the podcast. Uh, that's what three by threes are for. Come up with a three by three that gives you an excuse to talk about Lake Mungo. All right. See? But that seems uh, dumb. Like, then I'd have to squeeze it in. We'd have to shoehorn it into, like, a postscript to some other movie, like Tower Heist 3. And, um, I mean, we're making these rules. We're on the Internet. We don't answer to anyone. And we could go, hey, you know what? Forget what came out this year. We're going to change what we said we were going to do this week. We're going to change everything. <laughs> Just to talk about Lake Pungo. Doesn't that sound more fun? Sure. Yeah. Let's so so let's uh yeah. Why don't you start the, the Lake Mungo conversation? Go ahead, Kelly Wand. It's the best movie ever made. All right. There we go. There you have the Lake Mungo conversation. Now let's get back to the best movies of 2011. Uh, so starting at the top of our list, what I'm going to do is just go down and uh, read these titles. Uh, I'll briefly mention where each movie fell on each person's list, and I will ask that person who had it on their list. In some cases, we all listed uh, a movie. We'll talk a little bit about why that was one of our favorites for the year. Uh, so, Kelly Wand, are you ready? Anything else to add about Lake Mungo? Um, I was going to say that when I watched it afterwards, I was, little, I was trying to think if anything sucked about it at all, like, was there anything that wasn't perfect? And at the time, like right after I saw it, and I think we talked about this, it bugged me somewhat that the son character would notice photos that he was... That's not spoilery, right? But then I thought, he does... And he stopped. Actually, I do think that is spoilery. So let's let's hold off on that talk about Lake Mungo and just say, if you have not seen Lake Mungo, I think all three of us think that you should. 
Taiwan, why don't you tell us about putting Bridesmaids at the number 10 slot on your top 10 list? You were the only one that picked it for your list. I think we all loved it. But what made Bridesmaids work for you enough that it was your, your number 10 pick for 2011? We saw a lot of – I mean, I get the sense that uh, – I feel like I've been overselling Bridesmaids to people because when I – like, foisted on people who remind me of those chick characters. They kind of come away with it, like, yeah, which one was I? That one? Um, but we have to see a lot of stupid movies to do this podcast, like your Tower Heists and your Hangovers, and it was really the only comedy I've seen in the last ten years that kind of gave a shit about its characters. And, um, I don't know. I'm trying to make a list of, like, different genres. So that was my comedy choice. And you made me take, like, oh, God. So the joke's on you, because now we're talking about Bridesmaids, Tom. How's that feel? Uh, I love Bridesmaids. I uh, I agree with you in that it, it, I liked how it not only took its characters seriously, but it gave a lot of them uh, equal attention. Like, it sort of spread the wealth around. It was very much a Kristen Wiig vehicle, and she definitely shone in, in the center of it. But it was very generous, as we mentioned on our podcast, to the other actors and the other characters. Uh, I really love that about it. We live in an age where most comedies in Hangover 2 was super guilty of this, and it's really annoying to me that it was in the top four. Was uh, Just nothing's character-based in comedies anymore, and Bridesmaids was sort of a throwback to like situations being funny because of who the characters are, as mm-hmm. opposed to a monkey getting shot in any language. Also, you're no longer my number three is the best breakup line in a movie ever, and if like a movie has a line in it that I like a lot, it gets on the list. All right, so uh, Kelly Wand had Bridesmaids at his number 10 spot on the list. Uh, it, it definitely was one of my favorites, but I had 10 movies I liked better, and so did Dingus, apparently. One of those movies that Dingus liked better, he was the only one to choose this one. Uh, another, I would call this character-based comedy. Uh, so take that, Kelly Wand. Dingus, your number 10 choice, win-win. What made that, uh, what secured a spot on the list for win-win? What, what about win-win secured it a spot on your list? Uh, number 10 was a really tough uh, spot for me. Um, Win-Win just uh, kicked another movie off probably 10 minutes before I finalized my list. It was really <laughs> tough. Um, I guess, let me and, real quick. Uh, you, you last year uh, for each movie chose like a quote, an iconic image. Uh, did, did you do anything like that this year that you wanted to lead with? Oh yeah, sure, sure. sure. Oh, okay, so uh, yeah, so I'll. Uh, what, what is your? What did you pick from Win Win? You know what? I, I interrupted you, so uh, you, you had a train going. So you said it barely within ten minutes of submitting the list, it knocked something else off the list. So go ahead. Sorry. All right. Well, actually, I'm, I'm glad you did because uh, because I should uh, jump in with the quote here, and and this 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 kind of leads into why Win Win uh, nudged the other movie off my list, and it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot of why. This the list. My list looks the way it looks, um, and the quote is this. Uh, and it, here's the quote: "Well, good luck with that, pal. Oh, you'll see." Mm-hmm. And so that that's Paul Giamatti telling um, the wrestler dude, uh, you know, good good luck with not talking to my wife. Good luck with not talking to the mother <laughs> in the house, who's played by Amy Ryan. And, um, and there's a lot on this list that's about families and about the way families are portrayed in movies and built and the way families are built uh, as characters in movies. Um, and I just there's no I just love Amy Ryan in this movie. And, and there's the, the other movie that I could have chosen just 
there was nothing that was Amy Ryan-ish enough about that movie. I mean, she's just such a force of nature in this and such an emotional uh, powerhouse for me or an emotional center in this movie. Um, I was just freaking crazy about her. And, and you know, when we talked about Win-Win when we did it, the first time around, uh, Tom, you you sort of talked about is is this movie too Sundancey? Mm-hmm. And um, th- and this was the f- the first movie I think I talked about at the time that is that is that first movie of the year that makes me open up my list uh, and start like start making uh, an end of the year list. So Win Win was the first one that came on that and it fell off and then it got back on at the end. Um, and it is very Sundancey. It you know it's directed and written by Thomas McCarthy, who's one of my favorite writers and directors uh, right now working in film, and it's. You know, mainly it's because of Amy Ryan and that and that kid. And now I can't, I suddenly can't remember his name, uh, who's one of my favorite new performances of the year. Um, the kid who plays the wrestler, Alex, isn't Alex something? Uh, I'll look it up. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Dingus. Did you choose like a, a iconic image for your movies, or just quotes? Well, uh, well, what I, I I have the quote, and then wh- what I did, what, what I do is you know quote why why it's special, and why it's special is, is Amy Ryan really, okay. and then yeah, and then Alex like, Schaefer. Thank you, ah. yeah, Alex Schaefer. Um, so the 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 image that I really love is Terry, who um, was played by Bobby Cannavale. He's wearing these socks during this this wrestling tryout, and I just love the image of the camera pulling away while he sits on this wall and he's just wearing his socks. And um, and then the, the the little miscellaneous thinging I really love in this movie is this weird little character trait that Paul Giamatti has of smoking a cigarette and then throwing the rest of the pack away. <laughs> Uh, Kelly Wand, your number nine pick. Once again, this is something that only you chose. Uh, yeah. uh, this one, I'm, I'm not guilty about it. I, I like. The, I think we all like this as well. Uh, why don't you tell us what you put in your number nine slot for best hey, of the year? Forget because I, I read this is the list I sent you. <laughs> uh, it's a little Bradley Cooper vehicle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Called Limitless. Limitless. Tell us what what made Limitless work so well for you. This is one of the few few times. It's actually got a really annoying trailer because it's got tons of spoilers in it, but it actually did get me really hot to see the movie because it sounded like uh, the writer had really written himself into a corner, and I want, just wanted to see if he could do it and like um, find a way out of it, but. It's like, uh, well, now I see I'm getting the spoilers. This is why I hate these fucking lists. Well, just give us, just give us briefly. What if you wanted to convince someone to see Limitless? You knew they hadn't seen it. Unfortunately, they had not seen the trailer. What would you tell them about it to get them to want to see it? Okay. Well, there's a trend in movies that's going on lately that I'll get into when we discuss another of my top ten. Um, where um, it seems like there's this thing in movies now where where they used to be about just ideas, like someone just making a time machine and just driving around in it for fun. Like, everything's got to be about, oh, i got to get my wife back or find love or uh, just some milksop crap, basically. But Limitless is just about its ideas, and it's about uh, a guy figuring stuff out based on the tools he has. It's like Paycheck, which I didn't see. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's nothing like Paycheck, fortunately. <laughs> no, but it's about, like, what's he going to do as opposed to, oh, I hope uh, he doesn't miss his son at the end or something. Uh, all right, so uh, another movie that only made an appearance on one list. 
Uh, Dingus, your, your choice for your eighth favorite movie of the year was Troll Hunter. Um, ah. uh, what, what kind of quote, can you give us the quote in the original Norwegian, Dingus? Uh, <laughs> Smork, I can't. <laughs> Wait, is that the character's name? Uh, I really don't have a quote other than just him, uh, the image of him running toward the camera and yelling troll. Smork. <laughs> so he's a giant troll, right? Isn't it like a Godzilla-sized troll? Or am I bait? Uh, Kelly Wand, have you seen Troll Hunter? No. Okay. I don't well, see the, the, uh, the less you know about it, the better. Uh, uh, but I'll let Dingus explain. Dingus, what makes Troll Hunter work so well that it was your eighth favorite movie this year? Uh, one of the things that makes it work so well is that the less you know about it, the better. <laughs> to be quite honest, um, I was exposed to this movie thanks to a very good friend of mine who said, see this and uh, don't pay attention to what it is. Uh, don't look at the title. Don't look at anything. Just watch it. And if, if I had um, on my own gone to see a movie and seen the words Troll Hunter in a movie that I was going to rent or go to see, I wouldn't have seen it. Uh, but just seeing this movie, and, you know, I'm really happy that we actually started this with a sort of goofy discussion about Lake Mungo, uh, because I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, I've just come to the point within the last couple of years where I found out what found footage is and have started to fall in love with it, and I think it's about played out. And somehow this little movie uh, finds a way to make that still exciting and crazy and interesting. And it has a whole ecology of its own. And it includes bureaucracy and government in this weird, beautiful way. Um, I, I would encourage everybody to go see Troll Hunter and know as little as possible about it. Uh, it it's, it's written and directed by uh, somebody named Andre Overdahl. Um I don't. I don't want to talk too much about it. I just love no, it. That's good. I have I'm such in. a great affection for it. Uh, what What would make it special? I, I think what makes it as a horror movie aficionado. I, I think what I really respect most of all about Troll Hunter is its sense of national character. Uh, it is such a product of Norway. Even though the found footage conceit uh, is fine, and I, I don't think it. You know, it, it works great with it as a found footage movie. But what makes it really special, I think, is it's. It's just expression of Norway as a place, and Dingus talks about bureaucracy and the people, even some cultural aspects. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it makes me fall in love with Norway uh, <laughs> and their mythology. So, uh, yeah, good call, Dingus. Troll Hunter, uh, Kelly Wand, you should see it. It sounds Same. awesome, to be perfectly honest. And while, while we're talking about unique horror movies, uh, this, this year had some great stuff. I mean, the really big horror movies this year were, unfortunately, uh, I think Insidious and Paranormal Activity 3 were the ones that really made a lot of money, and I didn't care for either one. Uh, this horror movie, I'm, I'm sure, made no money whatsoever, like, like Troll Hunter, although Troll Hunter just had a limited release here in the U.S. This was an American movie that for the longest time couldn't get distribution, uh, and it, it made my number eight spot for my top ten, and it was Lucky McKee's movie, The Woman. Uh, I did quotes from my movies, so uh, the quote from the woman would be, who wants to go down the cellar with me? Uh, now, the, the woman is, admittedly, it's uneven. At times, it's a bit confused, uh, and it's even occasionally low budget to the point of looking flat-out amateurish. But I, ultimately, it is a startlingly unique horror movie from a director 
who I, I feel has been kind of out of sorts for a while. Uh, I, I love what Lucky McKee does, and he has this woman-centric take on horror. Uh, he started this with a movie called May, uh, which should have done for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein what Twilight does for Dracula, but unfortunately May was an art house movie instead of a, uh, you know, a book for tween girls. Uh, and since May... Uh, he's had some shorts that were kind of clever and some feature-length films that fell prey to various studio issues. Uh, and so fortunately, after going through a string of kind of misfires, here I think we have, with the woman, the finest expression yet of the kind of horror that Lucky McKee can do. Uh, it's very uncomfortable. It's a tough watch. Uh, I think some folks might put it in the same category as something like Human Centipede, but for different uh. reasons. Go ahead. First off, uh, I highly recommend watching the YouTube clip of the guy storming out after it at Sundance, sobbing that it was uh, an abomination to the filmmakers. It's really good viewing. And also, I forgot about this movie. It should totally be on my list. I loved it. And also, have you read Jack Ketchum at all? And do you know much about his So it's based on uh, a novel that he wrote collaboratively with Jack Ketchum. Jack Ketchum is kind of a... How would you describe him, Kelly Wan? Sort of a shock horror author, maybe? Yeah, I didn't read that one, though. Um, I don't think it's out. Actually, they were supposed to. They co-wrote it, and they were supposed to release it simultaneously with the movie. I don't know whatever became of it. Um, but he specializes in stuff that makes you storm out of Sundance crying a lot kind of material. Like, there's one. The one I read by him that made an impression on me was uh, Off Season, about these, like, cannibal kids that kidnapped these vacationers but like they're like swingers kind of like 70s swingers and uh i don't want to spoil it but there's just a sense of uh barbers and brutality that i enjoy mm-hmm. yes uh, you didn't read it i didn't and i think uh the woman is a sequel to uh after what what was the novel kelly wand of the woman no, no, what was the novel you just mentioned? Off Season. Oh, Off Season. So and then Off- Offspring is a sequel to that, but it's not as good. And The Woman is, is a sequel to Offspring. So, uh, it is? Yeah, Lucky McKee. Uh, Offspring was adapted into a movie by a friend of Lucky McKee's. That's based on a Jack Ketchum novel. And the premise of The Woman comes directly from Offspring. I don't think any of that really matters, and I think uh, mm. Lucky McKee's taken the material and elevated it. I'm not a huge Jack Ketchum fan. Uh, Lucky McKee's taken the material and elevated it way above the kind of stuff that you get from Jack Ketchum, I think. Uh, it is, once again, I think, in Jack Ketchum, you don't get this, it is, once again, a very sort of female-centric. It has a lot to do with the role of women in society and the, the yeah. lot they have to put up with. Uh, it has three uh, great, great performances uh, from Pollyanna McIntosh, a woman named Angela Bettis, who works regularly with Lucky McKee, and especially this fellow named Sean Bridgers, um, now, I want to come back to Sean Bridgers and his character when we talk about another movie a little later on, which I feel is a great companion piece to the woman, uh, surprisingly so. And I'll touch on that when we get to the other movie. Uh, uh, so, he's the uh, dad, right, though? Yes, he plays, uh, he plays, so the premise of the woman, I don't want to give anything away, uh, but it's an uncomfortable watch because it's about a, what seems like a fairly well-intentioned family man deciding to civilize the typical uh, raised-in-the-wild woman. You know, what if you were to discover someone who's been raised in the wild and you want to civilize her and bring her into society? It's kind of a, uh, I wouldn't say it's a satire, but it's, it's, a, it's a 
it, it's it's not like a sort of a realistic horror movie. Uh, it's a very black comedy slash horror movie about this one guy played by the actor Sean Bridgers who wants to recruit his family to civilize this wild uh, woman. Uh, so there you go. There's the premise. Oh, and the woman being one of the the nomadic cannibals from Jack Ketchum's previous movies. She she actually the same actress was in the uh, movie version of Offspring, uh, which is terrible, by the way. Uh, it's like if uh, what's the mount, what's the movie where all the women are in the cave? The Descent. It's like if one of those creatures, but they were all women, like the creatures in The Descent. Uh, not quite, because those were those were monsters. The the idea of offspring is that they're a nomadic group of a, of Native Americans traveling around, kidnapping people and eating them. What well, are not Indians? Uh, or, uh, hillbillies, I thought. Yeah, but a nomadic American. Yeah, I yeah, just... but she's like a cave woman. And something that I re- I liked about the woman too that I think is really hard to do that I don't even think Lucky McKee did as well in May, although I liked May was you're sort of on this, it's kind of a tough movie for an audience because it's sort of, you're sort of on the verge of laughing at how ridiculous it is and it's supposed to be, but you're also supposed to feel like kind of shitty about it at the same time. And that's not always a very pleasant, like some movies kind of make you work. And I can see where not everyone finds that kind of movie fun. (laughs) But I think uh, the woman kind of skirts that periphery surprisingly well considering how hard it is to do in any movie and it is a tough watch it's one of those rare movies that i wouldn't necessarily recommend widely uh, but it was what my eighth favorite as a as a horror fan i really liked it a lot uh dingus i'm sorry did you have a question i wanted to ask does the woman pick up where any of those others left off because one of my favorite things about the woman is how it begins and i love a movie that begins and just has me going what the fuck is going on uh, what what time period are we in what genre are you where where are we and then all of a sudden the next scene or the next sequence clicks me into a whole different area and then i realize oh this is where we're going but i just love the way the opening images of the woman the the opening image of the woman uh, it just i'm crazy about that yeah so so uh offspring ends and i cannot stress enough how dopey that movie is i mean it's really stupid and <laughs> it, it's uh by by bringing it up i don't mean to to suggest that it recommend has, it yeah i'm not recommending it and it furthermore has almost no connection to uh lucky mckee's the woman other than it inspired him what if we took a character in this direction so at the end of offspring uh it's cannibalistic band of native americans or hillbillies or whatever they are they, they have their own language they dress in furs and whatnot and they roam around i don't know Maryland or whatever. Uh, this uh, this uh, cannibalistic band of people, they get ambushed by the cops and the hero fights them and beats some of them up. And, and Pollyanna McIntosh's character, she's sort of the matriarch of this band, gets shot and run off into the woods. And everybody gets rescued and you don't know what happens to her. So uh, the images that you're talking about, Dingus, are basically uh, her after the events of the previous movie. That's where this picks up. Uh, but you don't have to have known that. Uh, you know, you don't have to have seen the previous movie at all. Um, and I'm happy that book. I did because, because just watching the woman and not knowing any of that, I just love that sense when you're watching a movie and you're like, what yeah. the hell am I watching? Yeah. The book's uh, kind of right. more just like a conventional um, how are they going to get out of, how are they going to escape kind of characters. Maybe. But the woman's kind of deeper. 
Uh, all right, so uh, the next movie on our list, uh, Kelly Wan's number eight and my number ten movie of the year. So, Kelly Wan, you can tell us a bit about what made it special first, because you apparently liked it a little better than me, uh, is Super. Kelly Wan, what puts Super on your list? I believe... Um, well, I mean, we all bring weird baggage to different movies, but um, with Super... I think I, it's it's kind of an uneven movie too. I think most movies I like tend to be uneven for some reason because they're more, they're sort of off the track. But I think we're living in an era where we've just been watching and we have to see these for this podcast, like just ton of ass loads of superhero movies. Like I think there were four this year, and there's going to be probably another ten. And I'm so tired of them. I think they're going to be looked back on as the embarrassments of our age. And this is like the first movie that kind of got that. Like, it was like kick-ass, but minus the selling out. <laughs> and it had Ellen Page as the best, uh, one of the best characters I saw in a movie this year. I think it was the movie that made me like Ellen Page, even though I didn't recognize her. <laughs> she, was, she was at her most energetically adorable, I would say. She was yes. so lively, and uh, the way the way she it was introduced into the movie, uh, like it's she's not there consistently throughout, but the way she's slowly introduced and then finally bursts into the movie, uh, I loved the way her character was folded into it. Uh, my my line from Super is, "The rules were set a long time ago; they don't change." Uh, oh, yeah. uh, and it reminded me, Kick-Ass, it certainly owes a fair amount to Kick-Ass, but it also is very similar to another movie with Woody Harrelson called Defendor. Uh, and both of those movies were way more uneven than Super. Super just had much more of a focus on this whole comic book slash superhero, like the silliness of it, the, the inherent absurdity of it. Uh-huh. And I really feel that the director and writer is a fellow named James Gunn, who comes from, uh, I don't know if there, there are a group of folks, that, that uh, a group of movies under the, the rubric Trauma, Trauma Films. Uh, and I've never been a fan of those. Uh, and for the first time, I feel James Gunn, the, this, this weird trauma aesthetic, finally takes a back seat to, in, in uh, Super, a great script and a wonderful cast. Uh, we mentioned Ellen Page. Uh, I thought Kevin Bacon was fantastic uh-huh. as this as a kind of a smarmy villain who ultimately ends up being a, a, like more pathetic than villainous, and I loved that uh-huh. about him. Uh, I love how when Liv Tyler first shows up in the movie, uh, I sort of rolled my eyes and I was like, oh great, we, we just got this super gorgeous actress. Uh, you've got this super gorgeous actress paired up very unconvincingly with the lead actor, and they just got her because she's hot. But I love how the movie addresses that and really builds that into what's going on. Uh, and, of course, Rain Wilson, uh, I think, finally, because I've, I've really sort of admired this guy, even though they, they make him play like the schlub or the comic relief. He's basically a clown or a loser in most of his movies. But I really like the guy, and it was great and super to see how much material they gave him. Like, he just had so yeah. much to work with, and he really, really rose to the occasion. Uh, Super's just a great example of what, of what a good actor that guy is. Dingus, it didn't make Dingus's list, though, huh? What is, I uh, it, it was like probably a- 13, maybe? I mean, it has my best, my favorite opening credit sequence of the year, and one of my favorite closing moments. I, Rain Wilson is yeah. phenomenal. I'm not going to give it away here. Um, but he's, I loved him in this. And yeah, I really, really did love this, but it didn't quite make it. It also does pull back, too. And I think that's the thing that takes a lot of movies off my list and will ruin 
Well, super, I think that's where you see James Gunn's trauma background, is that Super is absolutely committed to not doing things the conventional way. Uh-huh. It does not pull punches. It sees things through to their logical, weird conclusion. And I, I so admire that about Super. Yeah. Uh, the next get to, though, you didn't like Slither? Yeah, James Slither's Gunn. too much like weird latex effects and creepy creatures and uh, there, there's no it, there's nothing like the emotional anchor you get in super and slither no, no, slither's, but, just a, slither's a trifle kind of and but it's cute it's fine but the james gunn the thing i'm talking about it's like at the end of slither everyone's still dead who's still dead or who died in the movie like you, you see plenty movie. of you see plenty of horror movies that do that though i mean that's the kind of a that that I, I I was glad in Slither that they didn't you know you kill the main thing and everybody's fine. I was glad they didn't do that, but uh, yeah, yeah. But remember the faculty like Famke Janssen's head's been cut off and she's slithering around like the thing rip off. But then at the end she's back to normal in the cities. And like Elijah Wood's face is on Time magazine covers. Like, I don't really I don't really think of the faculty <laughs> as a standard for horror movies. I'm afraid it's an it's an everyone in town's been killed, but these last couple people. No, I know I've seen it. I've seen it. I just think uh, isn't that Robert Summer. Rodriguez? Uh, yeah, and I like the faculty it's no, too. It's no Planet Terror. Mm. <laughs> uh, I love I love Rain Wilson and Super, and I feel like I have such an emotional connection to him. And then, and while I had a great time watching Slither, I don't know that I felt like an emotional connection with Nathan Fillion. Yeah. Ah, it's no firefly. <laughs> Nicely done. Uh, pretty pretty. Next on the list, a movie I don't think you've seen, Kelly Wan. Dingus, this was your ninth favorite movie of the year, and now we're getting into serious territory because my fourth favorite movie of the year was Margin Call. Margin oh, I didn't see Call. it. I want to. Uh, margin call was uh, notable. Here's actually here's my quote, and I wish I so wish that I could say this with. Jeremy Irons' mellifluous voice, but my quote for Margin Call is, if you're first out the door, that's not called panicking. Uh, <laughs> that's a good line. Now, the, the uh, subject matter of Margin Call is uh, presumably, presumably dry. Uh, it's about the financial collapse of the uh, mortgage investment banking industry. Uh, but for something so dry, it's also, of course, very relevant and, and very important today. Uh, and what the movie does that, that's so special to me is it makes this interesting and lively. And make no mistake, Margin Call is a flat-out thriller. There's, uh, it is not a drama about banking. It is not a character study. It is not a, uh, a docudrama or anything like that. This is a thriller. Uh, and it, it does that by not focusing on the information, but on how people react to it. And I want to, uh, want to give a brief example of something it reminded me of. There's uh, an Akira Kurosawa movie called High and Low about a, a kidnapping. And High and Low opens with a group of men talking about their strategy for selling women's shoes uh, because that's the business they work in. One of the characters in High and Low is rich, and there's a kidnapping and a ransom involved, and that's the subject of the movie. But it opens with these guys talking about how they're going to sell ladies' shoes. And it's it's every bit as dramatic as like kings in a Shakespearean history talking about how they're going to parcel out the land or fight a war against France or something. Uh, and it just goes to show that subject matter 
does not necessarily, it's, it's not the most important thing if you can understand characters' motivations and make them feel and appear passionate about it. Uh, and make them appear, you know, the character sells the stakes, not necessarily the subject matter of the information. And Margin Call understands that beautifully. Uh, so, so, Dingus, what made Margin Call work for you? Um, oh, and what's the quote, by the way? My quote is, is the is the quote I think you used early on, and that's uh, that's what time is it? Two fifteen. What time? Yeah, two two sixteen. Fuck me. Fuck. So you've almost done it. So there's a, there's a they bring in uh, Dingus. Is quite, can I can I expand on this a little bit, Dingus? Go right ahead. They bring Sounds in like in the loop. They bring in an actor. It's a very similar killer one in certain ways. It's, it, it's not a black comedy, though. It's like, what if In the Loop was a thriller? Uh, so they bring in, at one point, an actor that Dingus is particularly fond of, in most cases, unless it's in uh, Killer Inside Me, an actor named Simon Baker. So things, uh, oh, they found out something crazy is going on, and they call it. They, the movie is about gradually escalating the stakes. And, and it, it sort of uh, it starts out with one guy discovering something late at night. I don't want to spoil anything, but over the course of the movie, more and more people get involved in what's going on. And it's got this beautiful snowballing effect where more and more powerful people start getting sucked into this issue over the course of a few days. And at one point, Simon Baker is one of the powerful people who comes in to, to look at what's going on. And after they've presented it to him, he says, what time is it? And someone says to him, 2.15. And he goes, fuck me. Fuck me. And then someone else presents another piece of information, and he thinks. And he goes, what time is it? And someone says, 2.16. And he says, fuck me. <laughs> and I just love this sort of staccato. It's almost mammoth-like. Uh, that yeah. sort of staccato hitting. And it's just showing like how, how important the issue is that, that a minute later he still has to concern himself with like what time it is. Or maybe is he just sort of delaying, uh, you know, having to make an important decision by just filling that little bit of verbal filler. Uh, it's just a great moment. And, and the, the script is so generous giving all of the actors great moments like that. And there's some fantastic actors. So I'm sorry, Dingus, I get so excited about the movie. So that was your quote. What time is it? 2.15. Fuck me. Uh, That's my line whenever I see what time it is. It's always bad news. <laughs> oh, God. It's fucking too uh, so, so Dingus, uh, what? Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I totally cut you off there. Uh, no, you're you're right to get excited about it because one of the things I wrote in my notes was this is this is Mammoth back when Mammoth was still Mammoth. Ah, um, yeah. And it's also Shakespearean. I, I I don't think you can get away from that when you're watching this movie. I think there's a there's a moment late where where somebody says, "Remember this day, boys. Remember this day." I mean, th 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 there is a very <laughs> You know, you you said like the king sitting around and talking. There's so much of that. Henry Five, we're sitting around and we're 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 going to discuss what we have to do. Uh, and then, I mean, there's so much Shakespearean about this movie, and and why it's so special to me is is encapsulated in uh, in this early note that I wrote when I was watching it for the very first time. And it was and, and this is the note. This is a quote from my notebook. It's 23 minutes in. I don't understand what's going on, and I'm on the edge of my seat, and I love this. Uh, I didn't really understand a lot of what was going on, but Tom is absolutely right. It's a thriller through and through. And another movie I watched this year, and I hope I'm not um, messing, messing with anybody's list, but, but uh, the, the movie Moneyball, which everybody says is you don't have to know about baseball, you don't have to care about numbers, it's... <laughs> You'll love this movie even if you don't care about numbers and you don't care about baseball. Well, I, 
I watched Moneyball, and I don't care about baseball, and I didn't care about Moneyball very much. <laughs> um, margin Call understands how to present numbers and figures without presenting them. It understands that you focus on the actors instead of focusing on the computer screens with the list of numbers on them. And I love that. I love a movie that understands how to do that. It's like when you guys, you, you two always talk about the guys um, in Close Encounters uh, looking at the, at the computer screens. And, and that's how Margin Call makes me feel. There's so many things that I don't understand, but I'm constantly on the edge of my seat. This movie was so exciting to me, and I'm so happy that, that Tom, uh, I think Tom happened to see it in a movie theater and suggested that we see it uh, because it is unbelievably exciting. Yep. So uh, it's it's, first, go ahead. It's uh, the guy's name is J.C. Chandor. Yep, he's a first-time filmmaker. He wrote and directed it. Uh, he actually comes from a family of investment bankers, I think. Uh, uh, and it was, I believe this was also a Sundance project. And he marshaled some amazing star power for it, as far as like the actors that he gets into it, with one minor exception. <laughs> <laughs> the, cast is, the cast is amazing. The cast is just amazing. And, um, oh, God, what's his name? The guy, Spock. Who's, what's his name? Uh, Zachary, Quinto, Zachary Quinto helped produce it as well. Yeah. And, oh, he's so good. He's so good in this. Uh, Zachary Quinto is so good in this. Is Kevin Spacey swimming with sharks? He in a... nope. um, you know, he's actually really touching, and he's, yeah. it's a weird touching part for him. And he has my favorite little uh, miscellaneous moment when he's in the bathroom and he shoots a basket with a paper towel. <laughs> And he just, does a, little fist, just does a little little <laughs> yeah. fist pump. Uh, um, it's almost imperceptible, too, that little fist pump. I mean, it's just an example of every the cl- the, paying close attention to the actors in this movie is, is so rewarding because yeah. of things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. Kelly Wand, your, uh, your number two choice, you were actually the only one who, who picked this. Now, I know we all liked it, uh, but Kelly Wand, I am now curious if after putting it on your list, if you can actually say the title of the movie you picked as your second favorite movie of 2011. Give it a shot. Mary Magdalene McGillicuddy, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> That's his number two? What? Kelly wants to number I get it. Wow, you guys are dicks. Uh, we, you... all, we all liked it. It didn't make any of our lists, though. Uh, so Kelly oh, wants I'm Kelly... shocked. He can't say, oh, man, this is awesome. Wait, this is Mar- so awesome. May. It's Martha May Marcy. <laughs> You're close. So if you remember the... It's not even the one I, I remember to take off. What? Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. I'm, I'm really surprised because I remember, like I said on the podcast, asking Dingus. Dingus saw it first, and when I just heard about the movie, I couldn't keep it straight. But after having seen the movie, I, I every now and then I have to pause very briefly before saying it, but it's in there. It's in my head. Uh, as we said on the podcast, the, the movie sort of assembles the pieces of the title into almost like a puzzle, and it clearly lays it out for you. Uh, but Kelly, one before I, I don't want to steal your thunder. Tell us what made this work for you so well that it's your second favorite movie. I'm more curious why it's not yours because I thought it was really. I well can made. tell you exactly why it's not mine because there are ten movies I liked better this year. Oh, <laughs> well, I, this yeah, is the one that I was talking about that Win Win swapped out. So <laughs> I'm I'm so excited because I don't remember you being this excited about it, Kelly. I'm really I'm really it happy to me. about it. It's got the best. I'm not really a music guy. Like, I like individual notes and songs, but the whole song is usually too long. I don't get poetry either. I'm not good at that stuff. But um, it's got the best song I've ever heard in a movie. And the way it's used, it really made me, like, speculate about, like, what motivates John Fox. 
his character in it. It's just interesting. And I really like the way it uses time. And, like, I like when movies use... Like, it's the best way to tell a story because you're watching it unfold in, according to the uh, fractured mental state of the uh, character. If you can't do that... Uh, I definitely want to agree with you, Kelly Wan, when you say it stayed with you. I, I think that is probably the most prominent feature of Martha Marcy May Marlene is how, probably more so than any other movie I saw this year, how it could be described as haunting. Uh, when I saw it, we, we recorded shortly afterwards, and I, I feel like it's one of those movies that the more distance you get from it, sort of the more impact it has on you. It just has this really weird but powerful lingering effect. Uh, yeah. And I'm not sure, yeah, so more, it's, I loved it, it didn't make my top ten, um, but yeah, when you talk about something that stays with you, that's a movie that I keep thinking about, uh, and the the music, I just think, uh, that we talked a bit about on the podcast, it's a, a blues artist named Jackson Frank, uh, the John Hawks song is a Jackson Frank song, and they use his music over the end credits, and God, I just loved that stuff, Um and she's really good in it. What's, which Olsen is it? Dingus, mm, yeah. Yeah, because she's not... Elizabeth Marcia Marcy Olsen. She's not Mary-Kate or Elizabeth. She's the, she's the one with talent. Uh. <laughs> she's not even one of the sisters. When I, when I, I thought initially she's... Oh, she's Mary-Kate or uh, Plaxico or whatever the other one's name is. But she is related to those two. She's not Mary-Kate or, or Mary Ashley Olsen. She's Elizabeth Olsen. Right. She's a cousin. Uh, but it's one of those things where um, I'm coming more and more to just really appreciate acting in movies the older I get. And, like, that's all I care about is, is like, little asides actors do. And that's all I care to judge movies by. Because <laughs> the other extreme is CG, because that's what we're given all summer. And it's sort of the opposite of that. It's like there's no choices made. It's just whatever they random, like, particle routine they programmed into the Transformer maker. That was, that was the number three grossing movie of the year, Kelly Wan. Don't miss that. What do they turn into that they haven't turned into by now? I, I haven't seen those. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> Sorry. But we saw Red State, too, and that was the other uh, cult movie that I think... Ah, right. 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 And this movie, Mary Magdalene kind of captured cults. <laughs> Keep trying, Kelly Wand. Come on, I the, guy, the guy, to talk. guy I want to hear you once say the name for real. The guy writes a movie that you loved, he shoots it, uh, yeah. you, you like the actress. So, Kelly Wand, for the listeners who have never heard you say the full name of this movie, I'm putting in a formal request. Say the name. <laughs> Get what's out of your hand into my face. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that instead. Can't stand it. Uh, all right, the uh, next movie, both uh, Kelly and Dingus had on, on their list. It, I loved it. It didn't make my list, but it was Kelly Wan's fifth favorite movie of the year and Dingus's sixth favorite movie of the year. So, Kelly Wan, you apparently liked Tree of Life a little yeah. bit better than Dingus. Uh, what made Tree of Life special for you? I love Tree of Life. Uh, there's not enough Terrence Malick movies to really not have one on your list unless it's New World. Um, <laughs> but... It has. Uh, there's something I do hate. I hate the last scene on the beach, but I do love Tree of Life as this time capsule examination of how childhood feels in our memories and while it's happening. Um, it's it's cap it captures that. And also too, uh, child actors are usually 
the worst thing in movies besides CG, but it's the greatest child acting I think I've seen in 10 years. Dingus, what is your quote from Tree of Life? Uh, my quote would be, I don't want it to. Uh, <laughs> Kelly that, so that's, that, that's, that's in response. No, it's it's in response to the the um, the helpful woman saying that this pain will pass, ah. and it's Jessica Chastain talking about the loss of her son and saying that she doesn't want this pain to pass. Now, I almost picked the the you know for the next half hour quote, which which is something that I I love saying. You know, for the for the next half hour, you're not speaking unless you have something important to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so I'm so touched by um by this family. I'm you know and and I'm I'm going to bring up Moneyball again unfortunately for Moneyball <laughs> because everybody's talking about how amazing Brad Pitt in, is in that and he is he is awesome in Tree of Life. He's phenomenal in in this father part and Jessica Chastain is amazing as his wife. Um, as the mother of this household, and Kelly Wand is absolutely correct in talking about the child acting in this movie. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 I put the movie in again to watch it, just to, just to, just to get a sense of the opening of it. And an hour passed before I knew it. Um, you know, when when I when we talked about this originally, I talked sort of embarrassingly about how my favorite part of the movie is the the birth of the universe, and and I'm embarrassed because the. I feel like it is sort of an analog to 2001 and the part of 2001 that makes me so annoyed that Starfield, that the whole Starfield thing. Uh, I just, I can't get away from, th- this is the kind of movie that I will put on, I think, and just let play and not yeah. be able to turn away from just thinking I'll be able to work and just listen to the beautiful music and the, the poetry of it because Terrence Malick films poetry in a way. Uh, but it's got such a strong sense of of family and of souls and of how that relates to the universe. I feel embarrassed saying those words, but ah, Tree of Life just... Oh, yeah. I felt that, too, and I like that scene um, a lot. Although, you know how when you like a movie, there's one scene in particular that stays with you? Like, if you think of the movie, you think of that scene first. And for me, in Tree of Life, it was where... Um, the brother feels bad about uh, shooting the other brother's finger, and so he goes, "Here, you can do it back." And then the guy, like the little brother, like jokingly pretends to a few times, but then kind of loses interest. Like, this is dumb. It just seemed really authentic. But this whole thing about at the end of this trend in movies of and just inserting religion in everything, everything so teased, it's tiresome, simplistic. I am legend. Is so monotonous, and Tree of Life's the only example of it where I didn't find it annoying. It definitely has a handle on how to relate larger questions to more personal issues and more people's personal lives. I love that about it. Uh, it's all I, related. Like we're born of stars, and now we uh, shoot guns into our brothers' fingers. Dingus, what was your uh, you, you picked for each movie a, a little thingy, I think, or, as you call it, or a favorite little moment or whatever. Uh, what was it for Tree of Life? Well, there's it's a, really hard to narrow it down for this movie. Uh, I think that my favorite image is um, the underwater house before the birth, where you see where you're not sure where you are, and you see the the pages of the book 
opening in the water, and then it's sort of this whole underwater house birth image that happens. And and I also really like this moment early on where Brad, Brad Pitt is standing on the lawn, and he's holding the hose crimped in his hand while he talks to the neighbor woman who has or the church woman who's, who's led his wife home, and, he, and he's saying, we're fine, you can go, we're fine. He's crimping the hose so that it doesn't spray any of the people who are walking by. I just like little tiny moments like that. I mean, the thing about the Terrence Malick films uh, is that they, they are so uh, rewarding on repeat viewings. Uh, another scene that was kind of good, like if you tell people that there's CG dinosaurs in a movie, I think they'll probably get the wrong expectations of it. But there's this really beautiful scene in Tree of Life with CG dinosaurs where one's wounded and lying on that stream bed, and then the other one comes along and puts its foot on its head like it's going to kill it, and then it doesn't, and it just wanders off and got the sense from that scene it was just like the point of it was that we'd evolved compassion <laughs> in a 2001 way it was like the the upside of the 2001 uh, point mm-hmm. and um, I, yeah. I can I can clearly see how someone who loved 2001 would like Tree of Life <laughs> uh, so we all agreed on Rubber uh, it was my sixth favorite movie of the year. It was Kelly Wan's seventh favorite movie of the year, and it was Dingus's seventh favorite movie of the huh. year. Uh, Rubber, we did not have a podcast on it because we sort of saw it at very odd schedules, which kind of mirrored how it was released. It had a very limited release. It had a video on demand. There was a DVD release. It's on Netflix Instant Watch now. Uh, my quote from Rubber, since I liked it most, I get to go first, uh, is... <laughs> We could have used those chairs to sit on. Uh, And what I want to say about Rubber, I'm going to get briefly uh, biographical here. Uh, Rubber is, you could call it an absurdist horror movie. Now, I'm a big fan of horror movies. I am not into absurdism. And I I think of uh, playwrights like Genet and Ionesco. I I never understood any of that stuff. It made no sense to me. You like the rest. Uh, however, as an actor, uh, I've done plenty of stuff that makes no sense to me. It's part of what okay. actors do, is they get cast in things. It doesn't matter if they necessarily understand it or like it. They say their lines. They do what they're told. And I want to tell you guys about uh, a point when I was back in Arkansas doing, like, community theater. Somebody, and I don't know what the play was, uh, there was some girl who uh, was directing theater, and she was very hip and trendy, and she wanted us to do some absurdist play in the back room of a bar in in downtown Little Rock. Uh, However, nobody is going to go see that stuff. And this play, by the way, that she wanted us to do, we wore on our heads these big papier-mâché body parts. Like there was a nose, another girl was an ear, I think that was the eyeball. And Uh we, we, we said lines that made no sense whatsoever. I mean, I don't know what the heck was going on. And this was some weird French play from 1918 or whatever. Um... And what was your line? I don't remember any of the specific line. Here's what I remember. Uh, And this is something she added to the play. At one point, there's a a musical number where we all dance around, and then the refrain is, we all go, cornholing, and then we thrust our (laughs) hips forward. Uh. And I'm doing this wearing an eyeball on my head. And the thing is, nobody in Little Rock, Arkansas is going to go see this. So what we did, or what she did, was she paired it with these on-stage recreations we would do of episodes of Charlie's Angels. 
So it was a little thing. You get someone in to see people goofing around doing Charlie's Angels, and then this weird French absurdist play, and then another episode of Charlie's Angels. Uh, I was Bosley, by the way. Uh, uh-huh. Thank you. Uh, and, and so the thing is, I, I've done this sort of thing. It makes no sense to me. It has no appeal to me. I'm not into that. I don't, I, cornholing, why did she do that? What was she thinking? I don't know. And the kind of people that would go see this, they would just sort of, walk into the back room from the bar. It was this sort of like trendy, you know, they were just like drunk, hip people, and as much as you could be hip in Little Rock. Uh, they didn't know what they were seeing either. However, where rubber works for me is when you put this kind of ridiculous absurdism uh, in the context of a horror movie, as somebody who really likes horror, I can kind of see why it works. Like, I don't, I couldn't tell you what something means in rubber, but what I could tell you is that what this really weird meta stuff going on does is it makes me feel and react a certain way. I am delighted at how little sense it makes occasionally. I am delighted at how funny rubber is. I'm delighted at how paste it is. You know, that that line about we could have used those chairs to sit on? It's the very opening moment of the movie. There's some people standing around in the desert, and there's a bunch of chairs on the road, and a car comes through and makes a point to knock each chair over and break it, and then someone says, we, we could have used those chairs to sit on. I don't know what that means, but it is funny. I can maybe apply some meaning to it. Um, and the fact that the movie then goes on to be about, this isn't really a spoiler, this is the premise of the movie, it goes on to be about a, a killer tire, quite literally. I love that. Uh, I don't pretend to understand it, but I love that. So that's part of why I love rubber, is I feel like, oh, this is how people feel when they see these absurdist plays that Genet and Ionesco wrote. This is what they get out of it. So that, that made rubber my uh, sixth favorite movie of the year. Uh, Kelly Wand and Dingus. Kelly Wand, why don't you tell us why uh, you liked rubber? Uh, I'm not good at remembering quotes, but doesn't... Isn't there a scene where um, they're trying to... Now, hold on, hold on, hold on real quick. So let's be careful about spoilers, though. I mean, uh, go ahead, and it's totally cool to mention scenes from movies if it, like, you want to use it to make a point. But uh, try not to like spoil specific things if possible. But go ahead. You wanted to ask about a, a specific scene. All right, scene. well, I remember certain like, stuff I liked about Rubber. Uh, there's a point at which they're using um, a... With... <laughs> to lure the killer tire out of a hotel room and so to entice the tire by the way i forget isn't it grooving in its hotel room to a tv show like porn or something it's watching uh it's watching <laughs> that's what it was one of my favorite little you know when we're talking about my favorite little miscellaneous thingies the tire watching well, I think part of what makes yeah. rubber so brilliant is how, you know, you say oh, it's about a killer tire. This freaking tire's a character. The, the director is a, a, a Canadian fellow named Quentin Depew, and he's done these cool music videos, and he's partly a musician. And by the way, the sound design in rubber is fantastic, from the yeah, music yeah. to the, just the overall sound. Uh, so this fellow, Quentin Depew, he just does such a great job breathing life into what is literally a freaking tire. Yeah. I mean, that's all it is. It's a tire. Uh, and you can tell what it's thinking from those sounds. It's a huge. The tire is a is a, a vividly created character. Yeah, but it doesn't make a single sound that a tire wouldn't make, except for the psychic scanner's powers. Bleep me away. Go ahead, Tom. <laughs> uh, so, Dingus, what made rubber work for you? 
Well, the quote relates directly to what Kelly Wan just says, in that this is the first time in my life I identify with attire. <laughs> is that uh, the first and time? and why why it's special to me is is um uh I went to see the movie Hugo with uh, with Tom, and afterward I, I made a joke of asking Tom which which was the best movie this year about making movies was it Hugo Super Eight or The Artist, um you know because you know. Hugo, we did not care for Hugo, or I didn't care for Hugo. I'll let Tom speak for himself. But you, you can speak for me on that. I don't want you to leave people thinking I might have liked Hugo. What's the matter with you? Tom loved you. Um, <laughs> not as much as Kelly Wand loved Young Adult, by the way. Uh, so uh, I uh, I talked about it. I don't want to uh, scoop anybody as far as the artist is concerned, but but the artist was the one, was the one I cared about as far as making movies about movies. And And when I was thinking about Rubber, I was thinking about you know, this rubber is kind of about movies too. It's about being an audience, yeah. and it's about uh, it's about what's real and what's not real. And so, I would have to throw rubber into that list as well, in in its way. I I, sure. I, I totally love what Tom is saying about uh, absurdism, and I I loved his his story there. Uh, I just I just. You know what, what what the audience expects, what they believe is real, how they suspend their disbelief. All these things are intimately a part of of how I view things now. Especially when I've got a little kid who is learning how to who who suspends his disbelief when he's watching things and when he's dealing with Santa Claus and all of those things. And so watching the audience deal with rubber and watching the different ways I'm not you know laid in the different way characters relate to the tire. I, I don't want to get too much. I, I I almost went too far, but uh, but anyway. Um, it, also, finally, it has, and this isn't a spoiler. It has one of my favorite openings of any movie. Ever. <laughs> yeah. So, thing is that di- rubber reminds me in a, in a way of somewhere the Sofia Coppola movie in that <laughs> early on rubber explains itself very clearly. You know exactly uh. what you are in for, just like the opening of somewhere. If within. <laughs> Five minutes, you are not into somewhere or rubber. Just bail because it is it is so upfront about what you're yeah. about to get. Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing too is uh, so Dingus, you you talk about rubber as being about uh, movie making in a way, and it is. I really think it's about horror movies. But most of that kind of meta stuff, uh, it, it, especially in horror movies, is really self aware and just ponderous. And I, I think of. Uh, what the Scream series has become. Scream 4 it was just almost offensive to me. I mean, God, it was uh, just... I saw Scream 4. And it's terrible, Kelly Wan. I, mean, I, I almost recommend it just to see how awful that kind of meta stuff can get. Uh, but as, as a, you know, rubber is just an example of how that meta stuff doesn't have to be ponderous. Uh, yeah. and, and I also want to say... Um, I have really high hopes for a movie coming out in March uh, uh, called A Cabin in the Woods by a guy named Drew Goddard who did some episodes of Lost and Joss Whedon, who everybody knows. Uh, if if you care at all about uh, that sort of meta level and not having it spoiled and really appreciating it, I would heartily encourage you, don't watch any trailers, don't read anything about A Cabin in the Woods. When it comes out in March, come to it fresh. I, I, I know far more than I wished I did about it. Uh, but if you liked Rubber, please uh, immediately instigate a self-imposed blackout on, on anything about A Cabin in the Woods. I just want yes. to put that out there. Uh, and Kelly Warren, you've had the same stuff spoiled as me, so I, I know you're with me there. 
Uh, yeah, also just a couple other points. Uh, a, the tire's name is Robert. I don't know if you knew that. It's in the credits, not in the movie, but in the credits he's listed as Robert. Robert. Uh, also, his Quentin Dupuis, how do you say it? Marie. You know, I, I was actually, yeah, I was, I was hoping to gloss over that uh, because I'm not entirely sure. I think it's, it's pronounced Quentin because he's <laughs> But his new movie's called Wrong, and it's coming out in a couple of months, and I'm excited ah, about good, it. Ah, good, good. Is it a, is it a feature movie or is it another short? Yeah, he's really he's been yeah. It's, and William Fickner's in it. <gasps> that is so oh, awesome. Ready? Oh, I'm so that's oh that's Kelly Wan. I'm so excited about. Yeah. I don't even want to know what it's about. Just stop no, right I won't. There. I'm, I'm stopping right there. But one last couple things about Rubber. Um, there's also a model in it. In rubber, named Roxanne Mesquita, I believe is how you say it. Roxanne mm-hmm. Mesquita. Mm-hmm. And for that scene where I'm talking about, they use her voice in to, uh, or they use her to, I'm just repeating myself, say lines as the mannequin to lure the tire out. Doesn't she say stuff in, like, really broken English, like, come out the pill, you piece of shit, to the tire? That's supposed to. She clearly has an accent, and she refuses to to read some of the dialogue because she thinks it's awful. <laughs> that was almost that was almost like, my line. Is I'm not going to say that. That is awful. Yeah, yeah. You're like, like, feeding her lines from a script, if I recall correctly, but she keeps mangling them and saying them horribly. Which I thought was that like a meta, like oh, models get cast as actresses in movies thing. Kelly Wand, I the the beauty of rubber is that I support any and all interpretations, and so does rubber. Explain the ending to me. <laughs> I refuse oh. to do that. You're on your own. I get that. I didn't understand the ending. Uh, let's move on to our next movie. Uh, this is one that uh, only appeared on two lists. It appeared pretty high on my list and a middling level on Kelly Wan's list. My third favorite movie of 2011 and Kelly Wan's sixth favorite movie was a Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, So as the one who liked it most, I am going to give you a quote. And the quote is, what did he look like? I can't remember. It's not going to make much sense until you see it, which I recommend. Uh, What I loved about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, why it was my third favorite movie of the year, is I just found it. It's from the director of my favorite movie from a couple years ago, Let the Right One In, Thomas Alfredson. And I thought it was so superbly crafted. Uh, just his work as a director, the work of the actors, the work of the two playwrights who did the script. Um, the level of craft in this movie is just intricate and beautiful and, and just damn near flawless. Uh, but what's more is uh, one, of, one of Dingus's objections, and I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to call you out or anything, Dingus, because I think it's a very real thing to wonder, is why does this sort of hot new director and an actor like Gary Oldman uh, want to make a movie of a 1974 Cold War spy story? And I think it's a fair question, and Dingus, you are right to wonder it. But my answer to that question, and part of why I realized when you asked it, part of why I realized I love the movie, is I, 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 it, is a, it is to me a very relevant story about how intelligence, you know, what nations do to, just, to figure out what to do about other nations, how intelligence is a fallible human institution. Uh, and in the wake of the invasion of Iraq, I think that's a hugely important thing. So next to a movie from last year called In the Loop, I, I think this is a, 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 an incredibly relevant story about the failure of, of, of Western foreign policy, in a way. Uh, it's kind of an anti-spy thriller. Uh, mm-hmm. And what it shows, I mean, it's, 
you know, that's that's what it's about on a larger level. But on a smaller level, it's about because intelligence is ultimately a human institution. It's about pride, love, and betrayal. Uh, I love just how dense the movie is, how it seems like every shot, every line of dialogue, every exchange has some sort of a meaning or a reveal. Uh, it's, it's so densely packed. I've seen it three times, and each time I've seen it, it's rewarded me a little bit more. Uh, so uh, I, I love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Kelly Wan, what? I, like, mm-hmm. I want to echo some really cool things that you just said, like the idea of intelligence as this commodity that, uh, superpowers are spending billions of dollars on and just screwing each other and themselves. Like, it's a waste of energy. And even though, like, Margin Call, and it was written by, um, the book was written by John Lacare. I don't know how to say anything, dude. Lacare, um, yeah, he, he has the little, uh, there's the accent mark on the last E, I think, so. Yeah, and I kept taking this movie off the list because I was reading the book at the same time and trying to finish it before I saw the movie and then when I saw the movie when I saw scenes in the movie I just read it was kind of hard to judge them as scenes because I kind of hate being read to which is sort of how it felt but the thing that's so striking about this just story as a movie and as a book is how high the emotions are running and the characters considering what the movie's about like it's about really smart dudes but they're paper pushers they're highly trained in in combat stuff, but that isn't, it's not like a James Bond movie. It's more about just like going through paperwork and like finding shit, using 1974 technology to like sneak documents out of buildings and stuff, which to me is endlessly fascinating. <laughs> but also, too, like you just said, like it, it, it is also about these really intense emotions um, and the way uh, they affect both your career and your um, just how you see life. And uh, I do want to take issue there. Like, I don't think intelligence is necessarily a waste of energy. Superpowers, of course, spend billions of dollars on it. But intelligence is a huge part of how the world works. You, you know, the, the geopolitical realities in the world, and it's always been this way, are that you have to know certain things that other people don't know. And, uh, you know, sure. inf- information is power. And now more than ever, that's a hugely important message. Well, let me re-say what I said, because I think I said it poorly. But, um in the movie, there's this. It's kind of like in Mission Impossible Three, where you don't even know. I forget what the MacGuffin was called, but you never know in the whole movie what it is because do, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. <laughs> it's like the perfect example of what you're talking about is a MacGuffin. Like just the point of it's not the point of it. And in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, there's there's a lot of that on display. Like there's never any reference to what the intelligence is that's at stake, uh, or why having a what the double agents damage has done to these institutions and these cultures and civilizations and like where the americans fit in because it's it's the british spy story um you say it's the british spy story but i love how it fits into the larger picture of the cold war britain's place in the world uh and 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 what's beautiful about it is that even though it talks about larger stuff like that is as i mentioned it's ultimately about personal issues of 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 people in love people betraying each other uh people being so prideful they don't see certain things yeah. uh, and other people exploiting that other people seeing that like oh absolutely super smart people going oh wait he's super smart but i that's what will make him fallible in this and i can get yeah. him through this and uh, i love yeah. that shit. <laughs> it's just great it's good to study uh so, like, to, if you have a job where you have to deal with people like that, where you have to outwit them every day in political battles to get something made. Well, here's a, here's an example, Kelly Wan. Now, you can see how Dingus feels for the next movie. Uh, this was my fifth favorite movie of the year, but it was Dingus's number two spot. So, once again, 
This is serious. Now we're getting into top fives. Dingus, your second favorite movie of the year was an Iranian movie called A Separation. Now, I know you don't speak Farsi, so uh, what are you going to do with uh, picking a line out of uh, A Separation? Uh, here's the line that I love from A Separation. What's wrong is wrong no matter who says what. Mm. Can, I, can I give you my line real quick before you talk? Yeah, please do. Jump right in. So here's my line. My finding is that your problem is a small problem. And I'll talk in a little bit about what, what that comes in. So, okay, so go ahead, Dingus. So, uh, uh, take it from there. Uh, so, just very quickly, um, why this movie is special to me is that there's not a false moment in this movie. It is, it is you know, I, I've seen a ton of movies over the last couple of days, including some pretty big, you know, these are big American movies and these are very important. Um, and and there's swelling scores and a ton of schmaltiness in a lot of these movies. And they might have made me cry or they might not have. This movie freaking rocked me. It's just completely real. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know, I don't know how to say what it's about. Tom, can you jump? I, yeah, so here you go. Here's, uh, it's of course, as you might as you might imagine, it's about a couple getting a separation. And you can actually figure that out from the poster. It shows two people who are a little upset with each other. Uh, and there's the big words, a separation over their heads. They're a husband and wife. Uh, and I don't think it gives anything away, but to, to explain what the movie is about, let me tell you about the first scene. Uh, it opens with a couple, a married couple, addressing a judge. And that judge is pretty much us, the audience, as is made clear from the way the scene is shot. It's a single take. There's no editing. There's no cuts. And the, the couple addresses the camera as they make their case. They're, they're speaking directly to us. Uh, we can see their, their confusion, their frustration, their sadness about the whole thing. They lay out their case. There's, uh, you know, they're at loggerheads. So they finally sign the papers to initiate a divorce proceeding, and then they walk off screen. What follows, that's the opening scene, so what follows is a series of events that forces us, the audience, the, 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 the judge, if you will, that's where we are, to consider difficult issues about the interaction of family, religion, morality, and law. Uh, it's epic in the sense that it folds all of these factors into what the characters do, but it's very intimate. In, in terms of how, how personal all of it is. So that, that's how I would present uh, a separation. Well, that's, that's beautifully presented. Um, what I'm constantly struck by is, is how all of those things are layered into almost every single scene. And in particular, the scenes involving the quote-unquote courtroom and the judge who is in that courtroom once the judge shifts to an actual character. Because I think, Tom, you're absolutely right to uh, characterize that we're the judge at the beginning and that, you know, the, as the movie goes on, I start to think as the judge and witness to these events, what did I really see as these characters start to tell their stories and tell the lies they have to tell and tell the truth that they have to tell. And then we get into the scene that is... A, a courtroom that is not like the courtrooms that you see in American courtroom dramas. Um, I I can't get over how real and beautiful this movie is. It's just and uh, earlier um, in a communication with the two of you, I said that I was going to thank Tom for something, and I have to thank him for suggesting that I see this movie because a separation 
struck me on such a deep level. It's just so real. And watching these these characters the, uh, interact and just just talk and the little things that they do like when the husband is is talking to the wife that he's been separated from and he closes the door a second time and the way that the 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 daughter who's played by an actor named uh Serena Ferrari uh she's unbelievable the yeah, acting yeah. in this is unbelievable it really and is the 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 movie is directed and written by somebody named Asghar Fahadi it's it's un Unbelievably beautiful, unbelievably real, and and leagues beyond so many other things that I saw this this year. My, my concern going into a separation, because I'd heard about it, was oh, it's it's going to get a sort of a pity vote because it's from Iran, uh, and the act, the the director, and actually you say the S is an SH, so it's it's Ashkar Faradi is how you say his name. Uh, right. So I, I was thinking, oh, it's just people, you know, there's this sort of sympathy vote because it's some guy laboring under the the regime in Iran trying to get movies made. He ran afoul of the censors over there, and the production was shut down for a while. Uh, so I sort of thought, you know, this this was just kind of, it, yeah, it would be one of those things that's like good for a foreign film. That is so completely far from the truth. A separation is just good on any level. And Dingus, you mentioned how that courtroom scene is like no American courtroom we've ever seen. But there is there's something, and even though it, it, it is so respectful and unique to its culture, it is so universal. I, I mean, I, I think it's a really accessible movie, and it really does, even though it's about different kinds of people, it, it's not this weird, oh, it's crazy living in Iran where everybody's Muslim, and, and they have these weird courthouses, and the, the women wear veils. I mean, that, that stuff is all part of the culture, but it still just feels it... it in a way, it like taps you into this culture that would be so easy to be portrayed in a, a way that either demonizes it or makes fun of it. And it, 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 it because the director is from this culture, because the actors are from it, it's just so relatable. And I, I just loved experiencing that. In a way, it reminded me uh, of Winter's Bone. In that, you know, Winter's Bone was about eh, hillbillies. They're always, you know, they're always ignorant and or, or evil in movies. It was so refreshing to see, you know, this is what it's like for people in Iran. Um, I, I loved that, that, you know, that window in, into this life. Um, you know, there's a moment where a woman has to deal with a very difficult situation, a delicate situation, and she calls what is apparently like a, you know, a 1-800-ISLAM uh, number. <laughs> I loved that. I mean, that was such a special moment to me. Um and it's There's not... so many moments like that. There's yeah. so many moments like that. And I, I, I really like the way that you're putting this, Tom, to, to characterize it as, as universal but other, um, because that, that's perfect. Because in a way, that courtroom sort of feels like how everybody might be amassed in somebody's in a principal's office, the way the, the, the <laughs> judge says you you have to get out of here no no you sit down and it's just there's this 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 thing i was not expecting at all and you're you're right it it's it has such a great sense of place and yet i totally felt connected to it yeah uh part of what's really special is i love seeing actors that i've never seen before when they are this good now, it's really cool seeing someone like Gary Oldman or Michelle Williams or Ryan Gosling being good, but there's a certain amount of familiarity that kind of lessens the impact. You know, you're thinking, well, yeah, of course they're good. It's Gary Oldman, Michelle Williams, or Ryan Gosling. But, but when you see actors like the five leads in a separation, and there are five just unforgettable actors in this, it has the thrill of a revelation. 
Now, that's something that only we get because it's kind of a cheat because... For the most part, all five of yeah. these actors are very accomplished actors in Iran. Uh, one of whom, too, the, the woman who plays the wife, uh, I think she's been around for a while. The woman who plays the daughter is actually the director's daughter. Uh, so I imagine in Iran, they don't necessarily get that. But it is so special to see this movie, to not recognize these people, and to get these just fantastic, phenomenal performances. Uh, all right, so a separation. Uh, Dingus is number two. My number five movie of the year. I didn't uh, and Kelly Wan's... Yeah. It's my new number one, though, because you took, like, Mungo off. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next movie we, again, all agree on pretty much. has made all of our lists to varying degrees of enthusiasm. Kelly Wan's fourth favorite, Dingus's fourth favorite, and my ninth favorite movie of the year was Drive. Dingus, tell us what made Drive work for you, and give us a line from it. You're not very good at this, are you? <laughs> Come on, I'm surprised. Why didn't you pick? Hey, you want a toothpick? <laughs> Mine is where Albert Brooks goes. Don't worry, it's okay. It's all good now, or something. I the line that I don't remember at all is really. Good. And let's please not say when that line is said. So <laughs> go, go ahead, Dingus. Uh, so you know. Uh, one of the things that uh, a lot of these movies, this has one of my favorite openings of a movie I've seen yes. ever. Uh, I yeah. love the way this movie opens. Uh, it it immediately had me on the edge of my seat. And it, and uh, a lesser filmmaker, this is this is uh, written by, uh, sorry, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn and written by Hosseini Amini. Um, it it starts in a, and a lesser filmmaker would have done sort of a, a 28 hours earlier kind of a dually bob or 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 made it burst into this huge action sequence and it just it has this sense of a revving engine you know the 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 rpms going up and coming back down going up and coming back down i just love the way this movie opens and a lot of people were annoyed by that but i can't understand that because it lays down such a good understanding of who this character is as this guy uh, is is driving for a heist, you you think. And you think, is this going to be a heist movie? And then later you think, is it going to be about a stunt driver or is it going to be something else? And the movie never becomes what you think it's going to become. It it, it becomes about relationships and characters. Um, and it's just such stylistically, it's so stylistically impressive. Um, I, I just can't get over it. But, but for me, just it's just, the opening of this movie. I mean, I talked about the opening of Rubber and something else, but I just, I, I'm crazy about the opening of this movie. Uh, Kelly Wand, what made it work for you? It's like Rubber, but with four tires. <laughs> is that the tagline? <laughs> no. But Dingus is right. It really is the greatest opening ever, and there's hardly any dialogue. There's some great dialogue at the beginning on a, in a phone conversation, and then for this... I'm always fascinated in movies, and this is another reason why Tinker Taylor just gave me a 24-7 boner. I just love movies about people's work and like how they, what they do from 8 to 6. Like what spies do from 8 to 6. Oh, yeah, i got to go down to bookkeeping and slide a thing and the briefcase thing. But this Ryan Gosling's job and the way he approaches it and how he uses the tools at his disposal. And I'm also a big fan of, like, movies that show how really smart people, really smart characters, like, work systems for their own gain. I always find that fascinating. And I just loved how... The Gosling, and that's not even what the movie's about. It's just like a throwaway, awesome opening, great character introduction to this guy's life. Um, but there's so many. It's got the best Howard Brooks performance I think I've ever seen in a movie. 
and it's uh, not funny at all. <laughs> what, what made it work for me, uh, I, I think this was probably the, uh, and I love using this word, the sexiest movie of the year. Like, Drive is yeah. just so sleek and sexy and sly, and uh, it's very understated, it, not necessarily in a flashy way. Uh, and and I think this is uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's ode to, like, 80s action movies, and it Michael specifically Mann. reminded me of Michael Mann. Uh, but, but what's more, there's that... Aside from that being part of Nicholas Winding Refn's direction, uh, just Ryan Gosling as a character, is he's so good in this, as this kind of laconic, laid-back, powerful guy. And when I was thinking watching it, I wasn't around for like when Steve McQueen was a hot deal. And when I go back and watch a Steve McQueen movie, I don't, I don't really get it. I'm like, what? What's the big deal with him? And I watch Ryan Gosling in, the, in Drive, and I think, oh, this must be how people saw Steve McQueen. Uh, so I, I love him in this. I love the direction. And I love how it's kind of self-aware in a very sly way. Uh, like the opening shot when he, when he, or not the opening shot, but an early shot when he's picking up, uh, the car for his first job. Uh, he goes to meet his, 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 his like sidekick, Brian Cranston. He's gonna pick up a car. And they're walking down a long garage. And the camera's tracking along with them. And as you're going down the garage, there's all these incredibly sexy, like 70s muscle cars. One after the other, after another, after another. And there, I'm just, a guy like me who loves those muscle cars, I'm like, oh god, this is so hot. And then you get to the end, and the car he's going to take is this, like, boring 2009 Chevy Impala. <laughs> uh, and I, I just love little touches like that. There's a brief fake-out where you think maybe he's a cop, and, it, and that's where they tie in the, uh, the movie's partly about Hollywood. And the movie is so beautifully shot in and around in mm-hmm. L.A. Like, I love I, – I live in Los Angeles, so a lot of times when I see a movie set in Los Angeles, the same old locations. This is such, like, a fresh representation of cool things in L.A., uh, I love how it's an ode to L.A., an ode to 80s car movies. Culture. Uh, I don't. When I think of car culture, Kelly Wand, I think of like the the Fast and Furious movies. Mm, no, but we have like L.A. If, for people who don't live here, it's a really big, annoying city where you need a car to get around generally. And but the way that the fact that Michael Michael what the hell's wrong with <laughs> Ryan Gosling's character has. Like, that's the perfect city for what he does. Like, he's in the Hong Kong of... Ah, right, sure. Driving is part of being in L.A., yeah. Yeah, and when Steve McQueen was a big thing, there was, like, this is maybe one way... This is what's awesome about Drive. There's, I always got the sense that we were supposed to like Steve McQueen. Like, he was always considered likable. And there's no... Uh, there seems to be a little pressure to make Ryan Gosling's character likable in the movie. Like, it's just more... Well, you know... interesting. Are you saying that he's not like? Because I, when I, I like him, no. But usually in movies they they hit you over the head with it, like oh he likes the baby, oh he. Uh, I don't know. He's not. He's not warm. I think that's what I'm trying to say. He's. Uh, you know what though? There, there's something. This is a really difficult thing, like for for an actor to do is like be the tough laconic guy. But right. Ryan Gosling has such this. This kind of like a twinkle in his eye and a smile, and like he looks like he's joking around. There's a point where. Uh, he's talking to Carrie Mulligan because uh, there's a there's loud music next door, and uh, she says she she apologizes. She says I'm sorry for the music, and he says I was about to call the cops, 
And he doesn't smile as he's saying it necessarily, but it's so, like, playful. He's got this sort of warm playfulness. Like the line, hey, you want a toothpick? This kid comes in and is showing him this Halloween mask, and he says, scary. You want a toothpick? <laughs> I mean, even though he's being like the laconic tough guy, I mean, there's something just, like, so charming and likable about him that I don't he's, see in a guy like Steve McQueen. Go ahead, Dingus. He's sweet. He's tough and sweet. And I hate to say the word sweet because it yeah. sounds so goofy, but he's... <laughs> He's sweet with the kid, uh, and there's stuff that's going on in the background when he's just dealing with the kid. And it's not that that uh, that made up hero. I'm going to give you a teddy bear thing. I don't know that's what I'm saying. That's what's good about it. That's I can't miss what I was trying to poorly express. It's uh, it's a subtle thing. And and the thing is that means I mean I think is a secret. Drive Nicholas Winding Refn is is not he does not shy away from violence. And Drive is certainly no exception. So that when the movie gets brutal, he fully partakes of that. And to see a sweet, likable, but laconic, tough character in a violent situation, I mean, it, it to me it just fits together beautifully. Uh, so the next movie, uh, now we have uh, three more movies to go. Now we're getting serious. And we're getting so serious. This next movie is my favorite movie of 2011. Uh, it made fifth place on Dingus's list. Uh, my favorite movie of 2011 was Hannah. Uh, now, uh, H- Hannah was... W- there were a lot of movies this year that I liked that were kind of slow and stylish, and even even a, a, an ostensibly action movie like Drive was kind of subtle and understated. What I loved so much about Hannah, one of the many things I loved about it, is how irresistibly energetic it was. Um, it, it just hurtled forward. It just had so much sort of pace and enthusiasm and, and, and energy. Uh, I would describe Hannah as a movie called Running Scared meets the non-sucky parts of Kick-Ass meets, meets Born Identity. Uh, I loved how it unfolded information about its characters, how it unfolded the setting, how, how even the style unfolded gradually. I love the sound design. Um, it's one of those classic, it's one of those movies, and there aren't, it's one of those movies that I would say uh, uh, seeing a trailer of it could destroy the intended experience. So I love going into Hannah, knowing nothing about it, not really having expectations, and letting the movie that Joe Wright made reveal itself to me. Uh, and I mostly love that because it, at a time when action movies can be so sort of like flat and stale and formulaic, you know, we mentioned the, the top five movies of the year. They had things like Transformers and the Pirates of the Caribbean. Like the kind of action movies we get these days I think are just awful. They're so yes. rote. Yes. Uh, and I trust, in a weird way, I trust the genre of action movies even less then I trust genres like like romantic comedy or horror, which have, you know, there are lots of horrible romantic comedies and horror movies, but in a way they're at least true to the genre. There are so many action movies that are just not true to the genre, that, that just fall flat and they're poorly edited or they rely so heavily on CG that I couldn't care less about the action. Um, so in a year when, when so many of my favorite movies were slow or understated, one of the things I just loved about Hannah was that it was was fast and dense and maybe not quite over the top, but certainly uh, pushing the top. Uh, and it's ultimately, too, for what, what I'm describing as an action movie, it's ultimately a movie uh, about a parental relationship. And, and I love that about it. Uh, I love I love the villain in it. Uh, it had one of my my you know Kate Blanchett as the villain in Hannah. Uh, I, she was just fascinating. Oh, and my line by the way from Hannah is, "Kids, they grow up." 
Uh. <laughs> uh, Dingus, why was this number five for you? My my line from it that I love every I've watched I just love this line I remember but sometimes I wish you would read it differently. <laughs> <laughs> See I do like the dialogue of Hannah. Um, that. This movie just reminds me of being a parent. I, I just I, I remember seeing it and I and this is another one that I'm. Thankful that Tom got us to go see, and and thankfully we got to see it together. Uh, I think Tom had already seen it, and we got to see it with him. Um, and it, and at some early moment in the movie, I realized, oh, for me, this movie is a fairy, a fairy tale about parenting, about a parent raising a child, and 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 all those fears. And and excitement and pride that go into raising a child, but in particular early on the fears. I mean, the, the movie presents a heightened vision of, of the parent's duties and the things that that he has to to do to get his child ready to go out into the world. And then he release. I mean, it's just uh, it, it also like Tom said, it's a, an amazing soundtrack, one of the most beautiful sound designs of the year, and um, and a great great central performance from Sir Sharon and it's I, I, I freaking love watching this movie this movie has not grown in my estimation since you guys saw it and I was looking I was I was feeling weary about having to listen to you guys talk about it. <laughs> although I do like the dialogue a lot and if I I do like the, the acting and I like Kate Blanchett and Eric Bana and Saoirse Ronan but my two, I don't like. I don't think it's unpredictable enough for my taste, and I don't like how he does his action. I think he cuts away from his money shots. I don't think he uh, conveys a very clear sense of the spatial relationships enough for my taste. I don't understand why she shoots all the cameras in the room if she's leaving right after that. Um, and I'm, it's fine. It's just not. I saw ten movies I liked better, including Bridesmaids. All right, well, let's move on to a movie you did like. Uh, Meek's Cutoff is the next movie. Kelly Wan, it was your number three. Dingus, it was your number three. It was certainly it was my seventh favorite movie of the year. Kelly Wan, what made Meek's Cutoff work for you? Uh, I remember when I it was actually when I first saw it, I was mad at you for recommending it to me, and I was really annoyed because the new the other trend in movies is. The um. Um. Let's uh, you know what? Wait. <laughs> let's bleep everything. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. All right, I'll stop. Um, it's uh, but if I'm gonna love, if I'm gonna put Tree of Life on my list, even though it has a, I can't ignore all the stuff in Meek's Cutoff that was awesome. Uh, just the way it was shot and the characters and the dialogue, the way you had to kind of strain to hear things because you were with the women and they're straining to hear things that the men are saying far away, and that they're all. Uh, I don't want to say, see anything I say is going to ruin something, and then I'm, I'm paranoid you're going to get mad at me. No, all you have to do, I mean, what makes it special for you? So, so the thing is a great out, movie. Hmm? Uh, the thing that stood out for me for Meek's Cutoff, uh, and by the way, my quote, this is, I don't have a line to quote, as Kelly Wan mentioned, a lot of the dialogue is muted, it works. Uh, my quote from Meek's Cutoff, if I could reproduce this, would be the squeak of a wagon wheel. Uh, yeah. It's persistent throughout the movie, and it has so much character. It's not a normal squeak. I mean, go to a yeah. door right now, uh, swing it, and see if it makes a squeak. You're not going to hear anything in your house quite like whatever wagon wheel squeak director Kelly Reichardt managed to dig up uh, for, for Meek's Cutoff. Uh, one of the things I loved about it, many things I love about it, uh, when I first 
saw it and saw that it was in what's called a 4-3 aspect ratio. Most movies are more rectangular, whereas a TV screen is more square. Meek's cutoff is very square. Uh, so it feels like the edges of the screen, you're not getting them. And it makes it feel, and it is this, kind of like an anti-Western. Most Westerns have sweeping panoramic views of the Old West, not so in Meek's cutoff. And I've been told that Kelly Reichardt has said in interviews that she did this for a reason, and one of the reasons was that it replicates what it looks like to see the world wearing one of those bonnets that the characters wear, that the women wear in the movie. Or, and I realize this watching the movie, it's what it looks like when you're looking out of the back of one of those wagons that they have. Uh, so I, I, Kelly Reichardt is such... I, everything she's done is fascinating to me. I love that woman as a director. Um, and this is no exception. And I love the fact that she chose to do uh, Meek's cutoff in, in a 4-3 four four aspect ratio. Oh, I was going to say, I remember you selling it to me as a gear of wrath of God, but as a Western. <laughs> the, Amer the American Aguera wrath of God, sort of, yeah. Uh, Dingus, what made it's it work cool. for you? Uh, Meek's cutoff was your third favorite, ranked very highly as well. Um. There's a couple moments in a separation um, where one character is uh, angry at another character for hiring a woman without getting her husband's permission to do so. Or or somebody says, uh, you know, I could bring you up in charges for, for not getting my permission. And one, one of the things I love about Meek's Cutoff is, is how the families work and how there's several different family structures. There's the there's the there's the family within just you know a man a woman and a child, and then there's the family of the the wagon train, and then there's the men who go off to make decisions while the women all huddle and wait to see what those decisions are going to be, and then there's this wonderful uh, thing that happens where uh, Michelle Williams and um, oh crap I can't remember were uh, Emily Tetherow and her husband. Will Patton. We're, thank you, Will Patton. Thank you, Tom. Mm. Are, are, where she's clearly his partner, but they can only um, talk under cover of night, mm. where, where they can only have yeah. these, these shared conversations that way. And I, I just love the arc of this movie and how families work within the arc of this movie. And um, and also how Emily, who is Michelle Williams, is just love, I cr I'm crazy about this performance, how she spars with Stephen Meek. Um, so, so my favorite line from this movie is, uh, or, or at least the line that I include now is, is he ignorant or just plain evil? That's my quandary. <laughs> um, my favorite little moment is Emily loading the gun and the different layers that she has oh, to go God. through. And the chairs, again, Tom talked about chairs with rubber. Uh, I love the chairs in this movie. <laughs> they, 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 they throw chairs out off of the wagon train to, to, to get lighter. And then when she's loading her gun, she's got a little chair that she used. I, I can see someone seeing Meek's cut off and thinking, oh, it's kind of slow, not much happens, I was bored. But for me, it was an, an, a, a, the production design of Meek's cut off was so fascinating yeah. from things like Michelle Williams loading the gun. You know, you talk about the chairs, Dingus. Uh, I noticed at one point they've got a, a bouncy chair that I guess is from the, the top of the wagon where you, I don't know, drive the horse. I don't know what it is. Uh, and, and that they've 
taken it down and they put it in the shade where one of the women is reading. And when her son comes over and sits with her, I notice it bounces. And that's there are no cushions on their chairs, but they do have this one comfortable bouncy one. And and they show them like like preparing their meals and washing uh, the 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 dishes and just as a procedural. <laughs> it's yeah. fascinating. Yes. Uh, I found that stuff fascinating. Uh, so, Dingus, you mentioned the line, is he evil or just plain ignorant? I think that uh, Meek's cut off in a weird way. I, I see it as a kind of a companion piece to one of my other favorite movies of this year that we already talked about called The Woman. Uh, and for a couple of reasons, uh, I love how both movies are, are very much about a, a, a woman's perspective on things. You know, a woman's perspective is a unique part of what makes the movie important. Uh, but but I also love how both movies are, and I, I'm going to get a little political here, but both movies make me think about ignorant leaders and the damage that they do. Yeah. Both movies Good. have characters that basically lead other characters into ruin, and and I I can't help but think of. Uh, what happened to our country under under George W. Bush, and I, I apologize for the political message, but but, but there you go. Uh, I, and and the characters, by the way, this obviously isn't intentional, but their names rhyme. Uh, the the character in the woman is named Chris Cleek, and the character in Meek's cut off Stephen Meek, and they're both. Uh, almost, they're both almost clowns. They're fascinating performances. Uh, whatever Bruce Greenwood is doing in Meek's Cutoff, he plays Meek. I don't know what that is, and I just love that Kelly Reichardt, the director, let him do that because it, it's damn near Yosemite Sam, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so I love how these kind of clownish characters anchor. Uh, they sort of lead both movies into their their conclusions, uh, but I also love how both movies are about how underestimating the natural order, or, or maybe being overconfident in civilization. I, you know, they're both flip sides of the same coin. How that can maybe destroy you. Uh, how uh, they're they're kind of cautionary tales about pride and civilization. Uh, One of the things I want to key on is what you just said about pacing because I remember the first time I saw it is sitting there and thinking a lot of people will think this movie is slow but I think it's perfectly paced and I was just I was so scared and nervous all the time because of the word um, early in the movie somebody uh, scratches the word lost on a log and I think of what that means for these characters that word and that, that relates to the nervousness I felt about another movie I sense we're going to talk about pretty soon and why I felt nervous about that. I mean, just the implications of getting lost for them uh, and and what they had to go through. The pacing was perfect. I was constantly feeling in terror. I felt in. I felt yeah. so on the edge of my seat. On the edge of my seat is a stupid way to put it. I felt terrified during this movie. Yeah. The editing rhythms are really tricky, and there's also, and this was, like, it's one of the first shots in the movie, and it's where I went, oh, I see what Tom's talking about, Agira now. It's uh, where you see this little girl holding up a birdcage as they cross the stream with a little canary in it, like, through these really turbulent waters, and it's just this frail little thing held aloft above this surging natural nightmare. 
That's a great. Ice. That's like a great image. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Kelly yeah. Wand. And I think Kelly Reichardt is absolutely hip to that stuff. Like I, the second time I saw it, it's on Netflix Instant Watch, and I watched it this week. Uh, you know, I noticed that the little the little boy. There's a scene where there's just people. They're just sitting around waiting to, to get underway, and the little boy is. Uh, I guess he's taking his lessons in how to read, and he's reading from uh, from the the story of of mankind being run out of the Garden of Eden. You, you know that that's it's enormously relevant. You don't know yeah, that terrifying yeah. child children's yeah. Well, yeah, and, and how the angel uh, how an angel is set up to guard the Garden of Eden uh, with I think there's a sword. I don't remember, uh, but. Uh, I was going to back Dingus up on his sense of terror. Another thing that I that helps that underscores that is um, just and when movies when you get like even awesome things like Quint's Indianapolis speech, like it, it, the shots clearly on him and you hear his words very distinctly. But in Meek's cutoff, there's a part where Bruce Greenwood's telling the story about a care, about someone you don't even know who's not in the movie that happened, and he's already in the middle of the story, and, he, and you don't even hear his words for a while because you're sort of in you're down the wagon train a bit. And so there is that sense of like just a vastness and like this human voice in this giant wilderness, like barely, and just talking about nothing. Probably well, you fabricated. Mentioned, you mentioned that, Kelly Wan, but there's, uh, there's another shot where, uh, and again, it's like I think Dingus said, uh, 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 you hear their conversations, maybe you said that, their conversations you can't hear because right, a, right. a lot of times the movie stays with the women, yeah. and, and it's just the, the sound of conversations that are farther away that they're having. And there's even a great point, by the way, where they come to an, an important uh, moment where the men are going to have to consult, and each of the men, one by one, hands over the reins to, I guess their ox is pulling the wagon, hands them over to the women, like, here, hold this, we have to yeah. talk, and how it goes from each each person doing that, it's like this great understood thing they do. You know, when a decision has to be made, the women hang back and make sure the cows don't run off or whatever, and the men gather and, and talk. But there's one shot, and there's so many great shots like this, uh, where it's it's clearly, it's one of those distant conversations, and it just reminds me, uh, Dingus, you and I were, were hiking out in Joshua Tree. Uh, we, we've done that a few times, actually. And there are times where you maybe fall behind or you're ahead, and you hear some of the other guys talking behind you a ways. And there's this great sense of the way sound carries over yeah. over the distance in the desert, like out in the wilderness like that. And Kelly Reichardt manages to, to capture that several times in the movie. You know, this is what it sounds like when you're outdoors in the middle of, the, of nowhere and there's someone maybe 100, 200 feet off having a conversation, yeah. and you just kind of hear it. I mean, the fact that that's part of the sound design in Meek's Cutoff, I love that. Because we live, yeah, it's like an Altman, uh, Cassavetes thing, because we live in cities and on right. Skype and a computer, like we're constantly hearing human voices, we're so used to it. And then Meek's Cutoff is like the reminder that, no, we're the dissonance. We're the tiny thing you hear approaching and you you can barely make out and it doesn't make any sense because it's really just silence for millions of years. Yeah. Prairies and yeah. it's, it's, it's scary, <laughs> which will tie into another movie we talk about later. All right, anyone get? We got one movie left to talk about. Oh, one last thing. I was just going to ask you because um, this was my first Kelly Reichardt movie. Is there another cool one? Every single one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, she's. Um, I, I say every single one. I only know of Old Joy, Wendy, and Lucy. Dingus, am I missing something? I don't think so. Those are the only two I know. She I might have been. Yeah, yeah, she might have done some shorts beforehand. Uh, Old Joy is, uh, I think the less I say about them, the better. They're all very different. Um, Old Joy is probably her most raw movie, I would say. Uh, but Wendy and Lucy is uh, just fantastic. Um, okay, cool. 
So, you know, I, I, Dingus already mentioned that we saw Hugo and were very disappointed. After we got out of Hugo, Dingus said, I'm worried about Chloe Moritz, and I, I poo-pooed you, Dingus. I was like, no, Chloe Moritz can do no wrong. But it occurred to me, yeah, Chloe Moritz had a lot of missteps, and as much as she was adorable and kick-ass, she was just so adrift in Let Me In and in Texas Killing Field, which I also saw this year, and in Hugo, that I'm going to do something terrible right now. I am going to take Chloe Moritz off the National Treasure Registry. Whoa. I know. You hate children. (laughs) Now I agree with the audience that booed you when you asked the woman to sign with her baby because you were trying to watch Piranha. So what that leaves for the National Treasure Registry, I think we have Catherine Keener, Marissa Tomei, Kelly Wand, and Kelly Reichardt. I'm going to put director (laughs) Kelly Reichardt in Chloe Moritz's place. Uh, She's hot. I, well, I mean, she hot. She's a woman from Portland. She may. I mean, uh, I'm not going to answer that, Kelly. One, she's a, she's serious. a. You know what? It doesn't. She's a genius. How about that? That's that better than hot. being hot. Okay. Well, there you go. She is so the hot. Is hot. Uh, they're all very different movies. Uh, she, but but yet they all have a unique sense of her voice. Um, so uh, yeah, Kelly Reichardt, our new national treasure, yep. taking yep. poor Chloe Moritz's place uh, for the time being. All right, we are left with one movie to talk about. Uh, Dingus and Kelly Wand agreed for their favorite movie of the year. This was my number two. It danced around my number one spot with Hannah, but ultimately Hannah is a movie I feel I can watch over and over and over again. I've seen this movie a few times. I could watch this several times. But Hannah is almost like comfort food. I feel like I could see Hannah infinite times. Uh, Take Shelter is... uh, a uh, our highest ranking using our Byzantine scoring system, our highest ranking movie, Take Shelter. Dingus, what made this your favorite movie of the year? And give us me and give me a line from it. Uh, the line is: Is anyone seeing this? <laughs> <laughs> that sums it up. I agree. I like Dingus's choice. Uh, the, the reason this is my my favorite, what makes this movie special is the family. And uh, and I've um, brought that up a couple of different times, and Jessica Chastain has come up a couple of different times. And, uh, the, and I talked about this when we did the podcast. The way especially she, but also Michael Shannon, builds a family in this movie knocks my socks off. And the way... Tom feels about watching Hannah. I can watch Hannah again, again too. But I could, I've watched, I can watch Take Take Shelter over and over again. I'm just crazy about the way this family comes together. Um, I, I just, I just think it is so beautiful. Uh, and 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 you know what I just talked about with uh, Meeks Cutoff terrifying me. As much as Meeks Cutoff terrified me, no other film terrified me as much as. Take Shelter. I, I, I don't want to get. I don't want to talk too much about Take Shelter because I think it's a movie that really, it, it it's so rewarding to watch it. Just even, not even looking at the poster, it's just so rewarding to watch it. And um, there, there's just so many little moments, like when when Curtis just when Curtis Michael Shannon shakes his head to say no to his wife at one point in the movie. Uh, we had a we had a really. Uh, I also mentioned one of my favorite disagreements we had which was during um uh tree of life and another of my favorite disagreements was when we talked about this movie um i i love talking about movies with friends and the fact that we get to see this i accidentally got to see it with tom and uh and it just made me happy to be able to talk about it with you guys <laughs> i forgot about that that's right wait what was the argument i don't remember it the argument is about 
Go yeah. ahead. I guess. We, we, we don't want to talk about it. The argument is about an and I don't want to get into oh, it oh, oh, now. If if uh, listeners want to uh, delve into that more deeply, it's very easy. Just go to our podcast to take shelter, and you'll be able to get all that you need to get. It got time to uh, invent the bleep Kelly Wand technology now in effect. <laughs> uh, I forgot that it was one of those movies that had a very limited release, uh, so there were only a few theaters that it was playing, and I just showed up, I think, one morning, whatever, thinking I'd go see it. And that guy over there looks like Christian. Hey, that is Dingus. <laughs> it, was, it was a random damn thing. Uh, so, uh, Kelly Wand, okay, what made uh, Take Shelter your favorite movie of the year? Your favorite movie last year was uh, King's Speech, I believe. Yes. So and this is King's Speech. Yes, it is. Um, well, I don't have much to say about it that I didn't already say on the other podcast. But, uh, I mean, something always goes down the list if I can think of anything wrong with a movie, and Take Shelter just didn't, the more I, it didn't, I, when I saw it, I didn't go, oh, I just saw the best movie I'll see this year, although I thought at the time, like, Mongo was made in 2006, uh, but there's just been, it just doesn't have a flaw, and it also had um, my best, my most favorite scene in a movie was, and it was just the least expected and predictable, where uh, she said, uh, cafeteria scene. Bleep me again. All right. <laughs> uh, so you know what I'm talking about? I, everybody who's seen it knows what you're talking about. And no uh, one who hasn't is listening. Okay. Uh, my, my line from uh, Take Shelter would be, can you deal with that? <sighs> yeah. Uh, so what, what I loved about Take Shelter, I have, I have longer than any of you jokers... And and this applies to people listening, by the way. I have been a fan of Michael Shannon. That guy, I love him. And I I think you were with me, Dingus. I was once at a bar, and I saw Michael Shannon, and I, like, totally had this, like, man crush at that point. And I wanted to go say something. I didn't, though, but I'm not kind of do that. You're no Paul Walker, but... He's no Paul Walker, but, yeah. He's better than Paul Walker, by golly. So I am so thrilled to see him given this kind of material. And he had done another movie with the same director a few years ago called Shotgun Stories. And the director and writer's name of Take Shelter is Jeff Nichols. Uh, again, a fellow to watch. Um, so I was so glad to see Michael Shannon given so much and and just, just rising in the occasion. He's amazing in this. But I think my favorite thing about Take Shelter, um, so many of my favorite movies this year are what you might call zeitgeist movies. They're movies about contemporary relevant issues uh it's kind of a theme if you look at some of the things i really liked whether whether it's margin call what i mentioned about tinker taylor soldier spy even meek's cutoff the woman but but more than any of the other movies i I liked this year take shelter is an amazing zeitgeist movie because it's about something vague and pervasive and that is the anxiety that modern families must feel I mean, how do you take that and make a movie about it? But that's what Take Shelter is. But, so I, the other other movies have done this. For instance, Kelly Wand, in Tower Heist, if you remember, yes, Matthew, Tom. Matthew Go Broderick on. goes on the heist because he's worried about being foreclosed on his condo. Boo-hoo. In another movie I saw this year, the Dingus made me see uh, a movie called Warrior. Joel Edgerton has to brave death and injury in an MMA, you know, a mixed martial arts uh, tournament because he has, uh, you know, he has to pay his mortgage and his daughter's health bills. I mean, it's like you just put this dopey motivation into the movie and then you make the movie about what it's about. But I love how Take Shelter unfolds this issue, not as just an existential everyday struggle, 
but as an apocalyptic struggle, which must be exactly how it feels to be dealing with these sorts of things. Uh, and I love that about the movie. Uh, it's just I love what that does with uh, with, the, with the story and with the characters. Uh, and it, it brings into play. Uh, well, you know what? I don't want to say anymore. Um, well, also, I like that idea, too, of, um, and I'm going to try not to say too much. I'm going to be very careful, very careful. But uh, the anxiety of having kids, not that I know it, but then, same thing as uh, Ryan Gosling having a sack up and drive, like having that, that level of pressure and responsibility, but also worrying you're going nuts or you're losing your shit or you're, you're unraveling somehow. Um, is fascinating in, in Michael Shannon. Well, that's what I wasn't going to say, but since it's out there, uh, as, as a study, I'm sorry. Of, uh, no, no, no. It's, I mean, it's fair. As, as a study of mental illness, I, I find a movie like A Beautiful Mind borderline offensive for how glibly it treats the seriousness of, of mental illness. Yeah. Uh, and uh, something like Take Shelter, the way it addresses that issue, is to me just a, you know, it's a gift almost. I, I mean, the the fact that. Uh, a movie can handle it with so much insight. I, I just find a beautiful thing. Um, I can't. I shouldn't be allowed to be, have podcasts. Well, I, you know, I think most people probably know that that's what it's about. Uh, I, I don't know. That's that's. It's another... just really hard to talk about what I like without e- explaining what I liked. Uh, so, Take Shelter. Uh, I think that's our number, the official number one movie of 2011 for the Quarter to Three podcast. Uh, so, so I noticed you didn't have. No one's picked Shame. Correct. There are several movies that no one picked. (laughs) You didn't pick pick Pesher, I noticed, Tom. I thought you would. Let's talk about our most surprising and most disappointing movies of the year. Kelly Wand, what was your most disappointing movie of 2011? Oh, so many. See, that's what I would rather have done a podcast about, although I wound up liking this, too, because it made me remember all the heart, the, the good vibes I got seeing these cool movies, which I would never have seen without you two bastards giving me these little homework assignments. So thank you for that. So the flip side of that, the part that my how I pay you guys back by making you see this stupid shit that we're about to talk about, uh, I feel i am reached the point now where I feel dumb for being excited for anything. Like, oh, a Conan remake. Even if it sucks, it'll be at least this, and then it's not even that. Oh, a Thing prequel. Those aren't very common. But the most disappointing, Tom, like, I was so looking forward to this movie all year, and I feel so stupid uh, like even thinking it would be good for some reason was Apollo 18. I was so excited for that fucking movie because space is scary and I'm I love found footage and I was like oh Moon Blair Witch how can that suck? Am you I would, yeah you would you would think of found footage you know playing on this you know un- the space race it's also Cold War you know you and me right. are really into like 70s movies in that era and how could that go wrong? Yeah, idiot proof. And, and I remember this. This I feel silly. This also made me feel feel silly for being excited about it. But it was a Spanish filmmaker, and we had right. just seen things like Buried, and uh, you know, I was thinking, yeah, the, the Spaniards they know how to Spanish make great movies. Ways. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what's what? What I think sucks about it? I don't think it's necessarily bad ideas. It's like I think it's shitty writing like the main character what bugged me the most was the characters didn't seem like real astronauts and i think that was what would have made the movie awesome you know kelly wand in in a way what's what's the worst kind of bad movie you can make is a bad movie that has a fantastic premise and that's what apollo 18 was and 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 this movie was was a fucking litany of awesome 
ideas. Should you, like, remember Battle of L.A., which is probably at least one of yours, I would think? Because that trailer was kind of exciting. And that's the worst, like, trailer to final product this <laughs> well, generation ever. The, the weird thing about that is Dingus and I did not watch the trailer, but we closed our eyes and heard the music. <laughs> so, oh, boy. <laughs> I didn't realize you'd see more of the aliens in the trailer than the fucking movie. God, I would murder it. I hate it. Should well, be right. So Apollo 18 uh, is Kelly Wan's most disappointing movie of the year. Yeah. Dingus, you better not steal mine. I'm afraid you're going to. Well, why don't you go first, Tom? Why don't you tell us what your most disappointing movie of the year is? Actually, no, I don't think you would steal this, because the reason I was excited about this is because, and you didn't feel this way, Dingus, I really liked Shutter Island. Uh, when I saw Shutter Island, I felt, you know what, Martin Scorsese... He's got. He's still got it. Uh, even though he's done some sort of sketchy things, he's doing a genre movie, a kind of a psychological thriller, and he's doing it with style, and it's brash, and it looks great, and he makes weird, interesting choices. So when we went to see Hugo, and I'd kind of heard some approving things about it, I was like, you know what? It's based on a kid's book. That's fine. But it's got Chloe Moritz, and and it's it's Martin Scorsese insisting that he thinks 3D is fantastic, and. Uh, I don't know, it's in France or whatever. Like, I, 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 for whatever reason, I think based on Shutter Island, I was like, Hugo can't be that bad. And, oh, it was just, it, it, I really feel that Hugo was borderline incompetent. I don't understand how a guy like Martin Scorsese, who's made so many movies, who should understand things like pacing and, and, and character art, and I, I, how does he come up with Hugo? You know, how does that pass through his fingers and get released? I was just so disappointed in that. Uh, so there you go. That's my pick. Uh, Dingus, that wasn't your pick because you probably weren't as, as sold on Martin Scorsese. I really wasn't expecting much of Hugo. I was just hopeful. And I think there's a difference. Okay. And so, yeah, I was, I was disappointed too, but not as disappointed as you were. All right. So then what would you pick as the most disappointing? I would pick Red State. Mm, good choice. I really like Kevin Smith. I like all the different things I've read about him. I like him as a person. Um, and I just thought it was shoddy. It wasn't when, you know, I'd been promised this horror movie. It was him growing up. And I think it's kind of a mess. And even the central performance I was told was going to be a great central performance wasn't all that good. What was the central performance? <laughs> Is it John Goodman? No, no. It's um, the cult leader. The three pre three priests um, and a funeral and a cup. <laughs> Dingus, you better think of his name because if I can't, I uh, can't think of his name. Damn no, it. Dingus, 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 what's his name? Michael Perry. <laughs> Michael Parks, you're close. <laughs> right, I was close. I was close. Uh, even that was was Michael you know, Perry. and I, I I would blame more the editing than the performance. Yeah. It just isn't. And the script. Don't forget the script. Blame the script too. I'm happy yes. to look at the script. And I saw it in a situation where I was primed to really love it. And I was just so disappointed that it, it you know, he's, he's swinging for the Coen Brothers fences and mm. uh, he's been coming close. What? So, what? What are you talking about? He, well, we, he, we, he thinks he's making Fargo. Or burn this. A little burn this to it. Yeah. There's a lot of Coen Brothers, I think, in Red State. You know, it's funny, Dingus. Uh, I, I think we we are both victims of our fondness for a director. You liking Kevin Smith, me thinking Martin Scorsese's still got to have it. So, just goes to show you, don't don't trust a director. Just Dingus, cause... what do you like Kevin Smith from? Because I don't, I don't. He's not good. Dingus he? likes Chasing Amy. I don't know if you know this. Nah, couldn't get into that. 
And, and you know what? Who? Here's the thing. I loved uh, Zach and Mira make a porno. I mean, I, yeah, I, did, I, I was like on board with Kevin Smith. So, and that was a huge bomb. Because I'll let you speak for yourself, though. Why do you like Kevin Smith? I like him as a person, and I like him as a writer. I mean, he does these great... Uh, I loved Chasing Amy when it came out, and then I watched it again before we saw Red State, and it was disappointing because it's amateurish. Uh, I, I like Clerks. I, I hated Clerks, too. I've, I've seen all of his movies more than one time, and they don't really hold up, but I like him. I like the talks he gives. He has a couple yes. of DVDs. They're like an evening with Kevin Smith where he does these yes. question and answers, and I even saw Red State during one of these Q&A things at the Wiltern Theater in Los Angeles. And I like seeing him talk. He's really good at that. Yes. And I like his writing. But uh, So I wanted so much to like this, and that's why it's disappointing. He seems really pleasant, but I don't like his writing at all. And Quentin Tarantino seems really annoying to be around, but his writing's great. <laughs> that's what I... Yeah, you tell me that after you see Death Proof, Kelly Wand. <laughs> Oh, come on. All right, let's go. Let's shift now to a more pleasant note. How about surprising movies? Why is that pleasant, here? necessarily? Hopefully, this will be something that you were pleasantly surprised by. Maybe you wanted to instead pick something that you were unpleasently surprised by. Uh, Kelly Wand, you know what? Actually, Dingus, you go first. What was yeah. your most surprising movie of 2011? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, by the way, I should say, yeah, okay, well, go ahead. Sorry. I, I, I want to say, I. I, I, am, I am very sheepish about mine. I think Kelly Wan might be a little, well, Kelly Wan is pretty shameless, so I don't think he'll be that sheepish. But uh, my surprising movie is, very, is a very guilty pleasure. I'm wondering if you're in the same boat, Dingus. Um, what is, what is, okay, it's surprising because I heard it was going to be terrible, and I wound up really liking it, as opposed to another movie that I had no idea about, and it was a gem. So 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 the so my most surprising movie is this movie called The Eagle. Um, <laughs> it's it's directed by this the guy named Kevin McDonald, and it's it's Channing Tatum and and Jamie Bell uh, going to get uh, something from Rome. <laughs> What do you mean something? They're getting the eponymous eagle. Oh, the eponymous eagle. I just, I, I freaking love this movie. It's just, it's this great bromance with swords and sandals, and I thought it was going to be terrible. And I watched it, and I totally fell for it. I was completely surprised. I thought it was going to, and I guess it'll become a guilty pleasure, because I really, really like this movie. Well, you say guilty pleasure, Dingus, but I, I think eagle's pretty, like, undeniably good. Like, I think of another... Uh, they're not sandals, but certainly swords. Ironclad came out this year from the director of a guy who made a movie in which Tom Hardy fights a minotaur called Minotaur. There's a movie called Ironclad, which is very much like it's very much like the eagle. I don't think the eagles should be a guilty pleasure, should it? I don't know. I just when when I bring it up, people go really. So much. It, it introduced me to something I had no idea. I didn't understand that whole, you know, the the line and Rome and all these things. I, I didn't. I don't know this this part of history very well. And and Channing Tatum and Jamie Bell are great in it. Huh. Part of it, Dingus, is that I there's another movie about very similar subject matter, same time period, same area of the world, uh, with Michael Fassbinder called uh, Rats. I thought if I Binder. talked about it for a moment, I would remember the name, and I can't. That's remember what I'm name. thinking of too, and that's what everyone else is thinking of when Dingus mentions Yeah, no, what, uh, Centurion, yes, and it's, uh, Church, it's Neil, yeah. Neil Jordan. I, no, not Neil Jordan. That guy, Neil Marshall, Neil Marshall, the Descent fellow, and and it's awful. It's just terrible. It has no redeeming value whatsoever, whereas I think the Eagle 
I think the Eagles flat out good, Dingus. I'm not sure you're allowed to call that a guilty pleasure. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I think okay. it's that's what you said was good about it. What was that? Uh, you just said it's ridiculous in a good way. Is that what you just said? No, he said he said it's flat out good. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a guilty pleasure. Like I, the one I'm going to tell you guys about for my surprising is a guilty pleasure. But I think Eagle, like Ironclad, is one of those movies where you hear about it and you're like, oh, that's going to be stupid. But I can't imagine people watching it and thinking it's bad. Uh, I'm pretty sure Eagle is actually good. Objectively good. I think so. I think so. Now don't don't take me up on don't don't say critic or anything. The surprise might have been uh, adapted from something, and people take issue with that. But I don't know what it's adapted. Ah, uh, it's probably a comic book. Yeah, Kelly, yeah. Wong, is there a comic book called The Eagle? No, but I liked From Hell, um, the movie, till I read the comic book like ten years later, and I went, yeah, fuck the movie now. All right, Kelly, Wong, So, what is your most surprising movie of 2011? Human Centipede Two. You'd said was I don't see it. Like, it's not even good for you. Like, you won't even like it. But the first half of it was way surprisingly better than I expected up until the actual human centipede part, okay. where it became now, a laundry list. You can go back to the tape. I'm pretty sure I never said you shouldn't see it. I said I didn't like it. No, Dingus, remind, Dingus will second me on this. You you said to, you go, it's just foul. <laughs> All right, Dingus, you've been called in. Where? How do you rule? I'm always told whenever this film is brought up that I'm not allowed to talk about it or see it. <laughs> uh, certainly not human centipede. That sounds like I win. All right. Uh, all right. Well, my most surprising movie, and here we go. This is a... Uh, oh, so Kelly Wan, did you have more to say about human... You no, were just surprised that I told you... That you think I told you not to see it and that you liked it. I'm not surprised, by the way, that you liked it. So you said I, I could use MacGruber because it came out a year and a half ago, but it, it, I was pleasantly surprised by MacGruber. <laughs> MacGruber is as valid a choice, Kelly Wand, as Lake Mungo. Oh, Lake Mungo, that's... Wait. So my most surprising movie of the year uh, is a movie that I expected would be awful and that I wandered into after leaving... I forgot what I left. I almost remember this story. What did I go in to see? I went in to see... I forgot, but it was just insufferable after a while. I very rarely leave a movie. So I left something that I thought was going to be awful. Crazy Stupid Love. Oh, God, yes, Crazy Stupid Love. Wow. Oh, I just couldn't take that after about 20 minutes. So I was like, F this movie. I'm not going to sit through it. And I went to see the change-up instead, thinking, this is going to be terrible, too, but I'm going to sit through this. So maybe it was one of those out-of-the-fire-into-the-frying-pan things where I just felt like this is going to be a terrible situation from an even more terrible situation. But I ended up really liking the change-up. Um, so here's the deal with the change-up. It's a standard, the premise, of course, your standard body switch movie. Um, but the things that I didn't quite appreciate about the change-up until I saw it and was like, hey, I like this, what's going on? It's the guy who directed The Wedding Crashers. It's the guys who wrote Hangover. And it has some wonderfully R-rated material. It's a very crass, uh, comedy. It also, uh... Has a great Leslie Mann performance, and we all love her. And it gives her uh, some good. Well, I say good. It's a studio comedy, so within those constraints, it gives her some good material. But most of all, it has two really good lead actors who I like, 
who are given room to sort of play around and breathe and be funny. And I think they're both very good in it. Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman, they've certainly done their share of stinkers this year. You know, I hated Jason Bateman in horrible... I didn't hate him. I just thought he was wasted in horrible bosses. And I understand, I haven't seen it, but I understand Ryan Reynolds is probably horrible in that Green Lantern thing. But I like both of them immensely. And their likability really comes through in uh, the change-up. So that was my surprise, is that I actually liked that. Hey, well, you know, go ahead, Kelly Wand. Well, I, it was one of those movies where we were doing lines from it jokingly before the podcast because it was just this trailer that we couldn't avoid because it was on. We just saw it so many times whoa, over whoa, weeks. Kelly Wand, you're coming at me, guns hot. Guns hot. <laughs> and, you hand out of my face. And every time I saw it, I thought, wait, they're both two brown-haired, uh, kind of witty, charming, leading men-type dudes. A body switch movie with two physically identical, same kind of comic dynamic guys didn't make sense to me. Right. But then when you made me watch a scene from it, and I go, oh, wait, Jason Bateman's uptight, and Ryan Reynolds is the smoothie, and now they're they're switching, like, they actually do have different personas. Yep. And I appreciated uh, it. It reminded me in a way of a movie that I mentioned a, a minute ago that Dingus made me watch. Uh, Warrior was, I would say, one of the stupidest movies this year <laughs> that I have liked. What's the, what's the premise? <laughs> Warrior. I, you know, I, uh, the premise is that... Uh, the premise is that some dude who's probably yeah. about 13 years old wrote a script about MMA fighting. <laughs> That's As opposed to Fast and Furious, but go on. You know what, Kelly Watt, it's about that same level of sophistication. Uh, like that. So yeah. us. But the, what makes Warrior work is just how incredibly likable and, and talented both of the leads are. Uh, They're committed. They're so committed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tom Hardy, and I think Tom, I suspect a guy as bright as Tom Hardy, who has gotten as, as material as strong as he's worked with, I suspect he knew how gruel thin Warrior was. But that did not stop him from turning in what I would call a Brando-esque performance. I mean, he is so committed, Dingus. I loved that. I loved watching that. Uh, so, And I think it's the same kind of thing with the change-up. If you get good actors who are likable and talented and committed, and both Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds are totally committed to the silliness of the change-up, uh, I, I think that can overcome weak material. Uh, and I don't think the material, by the way, in the change-up change is weak. I think it gets a, it gets slighted for being a body-switch movie, but it does some pretty smart things. Comedy also gets slighted. Like, comedies never win Oscars ever, and it's, like, one of the few things you can't fake in a movie. Like, the, when you say committed, it's, like, they have to be to make it. It's, like, it's only going to be good if they're into it, and they're definitely into it. It's like horrible bosses, as you see the yeah. None of them is really into it, and they're they're just kind of doing their thing. And the bridesmaids, another example, Kelly Wand. I mean, just yeah. there's 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 just you know they're obviously into the material. And but it's so. funny too, because like Jaws, not that I mean, which to me is a great comedy, <laughs> but it was like a miserable shoot, and everyone hated each other, and great comedy came out of it. So again, but so maybe, so I'd be curious to know if on the changeup or. What's another great comedy? Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids. Hangover. Was Hangover 1 as good as we remember it? Or I think it's, did you say Tentacles? Yeah, isn't that another? Because Kelly called Jaws. <laughs> Jaws is pretty funny, right? What's that guy saying the boat to him, Tom? Hey, you kids over there, the thing on the thumb, what's showing the rubber, though, that's over. 
Wait, what? That was your rendition? Of a, that was a quote from Jaws. <laughs> it's a what? Oh, sorry. Here's what a quote. Here, a quote from Jaws? here you go. Here you go. Come on. He, 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 he made me do it. <laughs> Wait, do you... Uh, never mind. There's too much Jaws to do. <laughs> I feel bad for people listening. But you guys didn't put Rise of the Apes on your list. It's most surprising. I thought you would. Well, here's Aww. the thing. If I, I thought if Rise of the Planet of the Apes had had better human characters, I, I think it definitely would have maybe qualified for, for my list. Cares about that. It never had that. That's like saying Charlton Heston. Well, he was actually a great human character. Well, you say it never had that, but those those movies weren't set in modern day. Those movies weren't weren't based weren't weren't predicated on you caring about the human characters. No, uh, but you because he's such a dick. You go, you care about him. Who? I think. Who is Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes? Nice. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I don't know. <laughs> Damn dirty ape! You really are and get into his head, man. Uh, but no, that that was not. Uh... Tree of Life came close for me. Okay, so what were the things you guys struggled with, other than Lake Mungo, uh, getting onto your list? Dingus, what were the things that had to fall off? Um, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene uh, right. fell off after Win Win. Uh, super fell off, and um, uh, I think the the uh, the other surprising one was one that we we stumbled upon together, which was Phase Seven, which I really 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 yeah. liked. Mm-hmm. That, that's, uh, that's a good choice for surprising. Yeah, but but couldn't quite crack my list. Kelly Wand, what about you? It sounded like you had to struggle to come up with with ten. Yeah. <laughs> well, I well, Dingus gets his screeners, and you're just like uh, a committed um, social butterfly. Uh, I'll go see a movie. I believe in the future, um, and I'm a lazy piece of shit. So. These are movies I wanted to see, and I was interested, and I think you guys saw. So then, like, if I say it, you tell me if it was good or not. Tyrannosaur? I wouldn't bother. Dingus? Dingus didn't see it. So Tyrannosaur is a, uh, as you you can see, uh, Peter Mullen being fantastic in a few movies. Uh, Tyrannosaur is kind of a showcase for that. There's a great female lead in it. Uh, who's kind of fascinating to watch, but it's just one of those uh, oh, England is so grim movies. So there's no dinosaurs in it. I'm not as interested in that. It's it's no Tree of Life. Rango. <laughs> I didn't see Rango. Yeah, you know what? People I didn't saw Rango. Talk about it with this sparkle in their eye, like dude, Rango. What what animation studio was that, by the way? Uh, uh, was it was Pixar, wasn't it? No, no please, that's no. It's Pixar, not Pixar. It? it can't be Pixar. It's uh, it's uh, DreamWorks. See, that makes me not want to, if that's true, that makes me not want to see it. Uh, yeah, so I didn't see Rango, and I didn't see... Ex- the Skin I Live In. I may be over Almodovar. I don't know. I, don't, Rango, I, I guess I should do that. I've never seen an Almodovar. Uh, Rango is uh, Gore Verbinski, by the way. Just seeing that. I knew that, but what... I, I, isn't it some... It's, isn't it some... Uh, is it DreamWorks? You know, I heard a clip from it. It was just so clearly Johnny Depp talking that yeah. just that kind of celebrity voiceover and Dingus, you've talked about yeah. this, just kind of turns me off. I don't, I don't know. It's Nickelodeon. Yeah. Your favorite movie studio. <laughs> uh, War Horse. I know you guys laughed at me when I wanted to see it, but I like animals and World War One shit. Although I'm a little suspicious of this whole being nostalgic for using horses in war because I don't think the horses would be. I think when the Jeep was invented, they probably went. Finally. <laughs> Does that yeah. happen in that movie? <laughs> it's, it's, the Jeep you know, the, how do you feel about the swelling John Williams score in Tintin, Kelly? Uh, that was him. 
That's how I feel about it. <laughs> uh, it's 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 just going to be your standard schmaltzy. I mean, I like horses. Is it CG right. or what? I don't even know. Dude, I watched Tintin. I didn't even know if it was in 3D or not. I made them give me the glasses. They didn't know if it was in 3D. That fucking Titanic preview that's not in 3D, even though it's supposed to be for 3D movies. And I'm There are real horses in War Horse. There are actual horses. There are actual CG horses. Any notable performances, Dingus? Is there anybody you're like, oh, yeah, this is worth seeing because he's good? No. No, the thing is, uh, I watched A Separation, and I was just so floored by those performances that watching, you know, Peter Mullen's in it, and but he he just has, there's just so much cartoonish, uh, oh, I'm dying, it just doesn't work. I think I watched Lake Mungo, and then we watched, we saw Conan the next night, and I was like, ugh. Uh, It sounds like War Horse is for kids. It's it's for kids who love World War One horses caught in barbed wire with mustard gas artillery shells going off all around. Uh, uh, so, into the abyss, Tom. No, is, is that where you're telling me to go, or that's a movie? No, no, I'm asking you if you saw it. <laughs> Dangerous Method. Oh, I didn't see Dangerous Method. Rats. Did any of us see that? That dumb. No, Cronenberg and Mortensen are two for two. So I don't know why you guys are giggling every time I. I, I saw it. And oh, should right. we, do we need to see it, Dingus? Uh, that that was uh, number two on my most disappointing list. Oh, yeah. ouch! I don't trust Dingus on Cronenberg, though. I think we just. I don't to... trust. I don't trust Kelly Wand on Cronenberg after seeing that rape slug movie. The oh, is... wait, Saw Shivers? I watched that after you recommended it. It's about slugs that make people rape people. You didn't like it? You're an idiot. You know, it's not that I didn't like it. Uh, I I I, 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 told, I told Dingus my my takeaway from seeing Shivers yes. after all these years is as follows. David Cronenberg is a tool. Shut up. <laughs> so like, am, it is so it is so amateurish and and oh, just what? the cast. Oh God, it's just icky. It, you know, I hate you're, it. I, I, you're wrong about Breaking Bad. She, her weight gain makes perfect sense for the story, and you're wrong about Armageddon, and you're wrong about uh, whatever we're talking about. Here's something else I'm wrong about. Uh, Dingus wasn't crazy about this, but I really found it. Pretty uh, irresistible, uh, and that is the artist. Uh, didn't make my list, but I, I just was so charmed and won over by the artist. Now it is granted um, a little, I don't know, flighty, uh, maybe insubstantial, ethereal, whatever. Um, it's not a heavy, serious movie, and that's fine. But I loved what it was doing, and it totally won me over. Uh, Dingus wasn't into it that much. My mom fell asleep during it. Dingus thoughts? Did you it's fall asleep delightful during? and charming, but uh, as I said to Tom, I liked it better when it was uh, was uh, singing in the rain. <laughs> I heard the soundtrack's awesome. It's not. It's repetitive, and at a certain point in the movie, you go, "Are you going to change songs anytime soon?" Uh, I didn't even know it had music. It, the, the, the problem with the artist is that for me, it suffers from. Uh, raised expectations of everybody saying it's the movie of the decade or whatever. It's silent. It's fucking great. Plus, uh, Dingus hates friend. One, two, three, not only you and me, got one La, 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 la. Wait. Uh, what just happened? Did I have dream all this? <laughs> I have no idea. Dingus hates Freud. One, two, three. He was going to say Freud. Tom did that to himself. He was he went solo. He went off script, like Joffrey. 
unfortunately, if we do the Britney Spears segue after I say something, the timing screws it up. So what I had, what I had uh, claimed is that Dingus hates French people. And you thought that was a good one, two, three? Are you crazy? There's that sort of sex joke. You, you know what? You understand how rap works, Senator? Tell you what, I'm going to have to turn over the uh, the Britney Spears to you from now on. I agree. That's all I had. I, I just think we I think we're coming up on four hours right good now. Why so? <laughs> Wait, one more hour. Why'd you guys say it melancholia so much? Someone else was telling it was good. One, two, three, French people. <laughs> Kelly Wan, if you want to see uh, Kirsten Dunst get hit by a p- it is the movie for you. Yeah. Let's do a three by three. Uh, this is Dingus's three by three. Uh, Dingus, what do you got for us this week? Let's let's tear fairly quickly through these. Or hours. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's right. let's tear a new one. This is uh, your three favorite montages. Okay, and what is a montage? Just because I, I I'm a little worried with what Kelly Wand might come up with. There's a song about it in Team America. It's it's funny that you think that me explaining it will alleviate your fears about <laughs> faster. Yeah. So it's it's you know it it kind of dovetails off of Kelly's from a, a couple of weeks ago about transitions, but it's it's a, a sequence of images in a movie that usually uh, has a, a song that goes over it, and it usually provides a transition. But uh, a movie montage is usually musical and has a series of images that convey. Uh, uh, something that goes on in the story might be the passage of time or a passage of something that goes on with a character. Very good. All right, so I'm just going to get into my number three. I feel awful about my numbers one and two, but huh. we'll get to that in a moment. My number three are the heroine sequences in Requiem for a Dream. Uh, now, I myself have never done heroin, so I have no idea what it's like. But I thought that Aronofsky did a great job of conveying a state of mind the way he would run through these quick-cut montages of, of fast, intense imagery of, like, needles and dilating eye pupils and whatnot, uh, along with Clipman's self-soundtrack. Uh, and then he would transition to the characters lolling around, totally blissed out. Uh, so I loved those, hey, let's do heroin uh, montages in Requiem for a Dream. Here's my number three. Heroin's overrated. <laughs> Super heroin. Uh, Kelly Wand, what is your number three favorite montage of all time in movies? Uh, my number three favorite montage in movies is from Wet Hot American Summer, which keeps <laughs> coming up on my list. But you remember the part? It's far and away the best sequence in the movie. It's where they uh, visit the city. I don't know if you guys remember. They take the pickup truck and they scream delightedly. And I forget the song that's playing. And they score a six-pack of Pepsi. And they go to a library, and uh, they do some blow and some crack. There's another good montage in it later where uh, Michael Showalter learns to run, but it's not as good as the crack and the French fries. The funny thing about Wet Hot American Summer is that I, I don't think I appreciated some of the actors in it when I first saw it, and I, I would probably like that if I saw it again. So you got to be in the mood for it, and you got to. I mean, you have to get that it's a parody of meatballs, like you have to even think that that's a good idea for a movie, which I can understand a lot of people not giving a shit about. That's no too many steps for the average moviegoer, probably. I would rather see a parody of... Oh, rats. I have the... Uh, what's the name of the one? There's some, like, summer camp drama with Kristen McNichol, maybe, and Tatum O'Neill. Oh, uh, Little Darlings. Yeah! Thank you, Kelly Wan. <laughs> 
<laughs> there. Wars. That's a great movie. Wait, uh, that's a good movie, though. See, those kind of movies used to be good, and now it's like, oh, we got to learn uh, to be good people kind of stuff. <laughs> we, that. Don't, we don't want that in our summer camp movies. No. We want uh, the all right, Wet Hot American Summer. I mean, you know what, Kelly Wand? If you see Margin Call, I'll see Wet Hot American Summer. How's that for a trade? That's the least stupid movie montage on my list. I think you'll think. You'll go, right. ugh. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll find out. Four out. Sorry. Dingus, what is your number three choice for best montage in a movie of all time? All right, this is the one that made me start this list, and I don't remember the song, and I feel stupid, but uh, I remember the uh, the montage pretty well. And it's from the movie Funny People. Um, and there's this awful, I think it's, a, I think it might be just Adam Sandler singing a song. Um, but, but for me, and, and this is actually fairly pertinent to what just went on in my life. Um, there, there's this, this beautiful moment where he's in, in the bathroom hugging the toilet. I mean, he's, he's sick. Uh, because he's got cancer and Seth Rogen is talking to him, but, but you, I don't think you can hear that because the song's playing and it's clear that, that, that the Seth Rogen character is just chattering on. But then there's this long shot of him patting Sandler on the back because he's sick. And, uh, and I just, I really remember responding. I, I, there's a lot of funny people that falls apart for me, but that, that, that part of the montage where you really understand what their relationship is. Uh, my kid was sick over the holidays, and so, uh, you know, that thing where you have to s- sit next to your friend or somebody who's your loved one and, and pat them on the back while they're throwing up. Um, th- that funny people montage, I really love that. Kelly, when have you been on that date? <laughs> I wish. I have to pat myself on the back and the front. Uh, all One, right. two, three. My number two favorite montage. Now, here's where, well, you know what? I'll wait till my number one. My number two favorite montage, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to I'm gonna play the music. So I want you guys to tell me what movie is this from. Uh-oh. Oh, that's an easy one. Give me something hard, fool. <laughs> uh, the, reason, the reason I picked that, though, is... I mean, a crucial part of the montage is the, is the music that's playing, I think. Uh, and this is the, the scene in Jaws where they're building the shark cage. Uh, and I think this is John Williams has done a lot of music, and everybody knows the little two-note thing from Jaws. But this thing right here, listen to this. Yeah. It's like the Jaws theme, but, like, you know, we could be with our own music. I mean, has John Williams ever done music that good? I, I, I feel no. that's his best piece of music. Uh, so I love that scene in Jaws. Um, it's where they first come together. They're working together, I think, for the first time. There's not someone at cross purposes. Hooper isn't disagreeing with Quint about what they should do. It's they're all collaborating to build this cage to drop uh, Matt Hooper into the ocean. It's, it's absolutely epic. Uh, that comes and I love that montage. Is uh, out of the movie. So nope, there's not. Quint is still there. What's the matter with you, Kelly Wand? What, am I gonna have to? Am I gonna have to dock you on your Jaws score? I'll bet you. I'll bet you five bucks on the air. 
All right. I look forward to it. How am I going to spend this five bucks? Wow. Did you watch it? Like, you are you know how stupid I am right now. Kelly Wand, I, 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 I know Jaws. Hello. I, I know Jaws so well. There's even a shot of all three of them. What are you talking about? Here, here you go, Kelly Wand. Just like the cage. He thinks the quage is retarded. He wouldn't help make it. First of all, it's not a, it's not a quage. It's a cage. First of all. <laughs> Here's how I'm going to prove to you. I'm going to remind you of a scene where you will know for sure that Quint is present for the building of the cage. Are you ready? I'll give you a line. You can get this little needle through his skin. No? No, I can't do that. But if you get me close enough... I can get him with this. And and, and Hooper holds up the, the bang stick like that, that stick that he puts the drugs into. You remember what I'm talking about? Where Quint's yeah, holding the needle? Yeah, but I think before that. And then they Why else? <laughs> no, of course, that's exactly where they did. Although now I'm thinking, wait, the boat's already collapsing when Quint dies, that's, so it can't be. The boat is sinking. Quint dies, and then the ship starts sinking immediately. Yeah, that, is, that sounds kind of... Yeah. All right, so next time you see me, you can pay me the five bucks. But doesn't the cage, I really don't, I just can't picture Quint make, helping them make the cage. Okay, I have no memory. That's exactly the beauty of the montage, is that Quint is finally on board, you know, that whole, you go in the cage, cage is in the water. Quint's finally on board, you know, they're, they're at a point where they've got to do this. This is the only thing left to do. I'm just they, remembering it as Quint's dead. We got to make this cage, because now there's only two of us, and now our options are the stupid cage and nothing. Nope, they make the cage, they lower it in the water. Uh, there's that great scene, and I love that scene, too. It's just a great little bit of character uh, development, well, not development, but it's just like this great, you know, where you see how scared Hooper is when he's down there in the water ready to put on his diving mask, and he says, I ain't got no spit. You know, you yeah. spit into a mask, and his just mouth is so dry knowing he's got to do this. And in the script, there's this... Where's Quint? Quint's behind him. Quint is, uh, is the one doing the winch to lower the cage while Brody is handing him his mask, and he does the great moment where he taps him on the head and points at his glasses, because Hooper's still wearing his glasses. Uh, does it, okay, so doesn't something tragic happen, like, right before the cage? Like, am I... Well, well, Quint freaks out and is trying to pull the shark inland, and he burns the engine out. He basically cripples the orca. Uh, by the way, something else I noticed. Uh, I did watch it recently, Kelly Wand. So. Uh, something else I noticed. I don't think I knew this before. Hooper is wearing a wedding ring. Yeah. Wow. I had never caught that. I've seen Jaws 50 times. I don't think I'd ever noticed that before. That means there's an old woman in Piranha 3D who's a widow now. <laughs> but also, Brody hands him a gun, and then he hands it back to Quinn. <laughs> He's banging Ellen Brody in the book, as I've mentioned before. So it's like. So I was I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll do our, our brief. This is a regular feature on our podcast. We'll do our brief Jaws diversion. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this. Uh, in in the book, Hooper gets killed, and I kind of wished that he'd gotten killed in the movie. Yeah. Well, the way it's it's also too just really implausible. Like, what's he doing while right. Brody's doing all this stuff? Well, he's. Oh, he's the shark tears up the cage and then conveniently right. pulls out of the way so that Hooper can swim out of the cage and then and go hide. hide in the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, that works against sharks. I'll hide behind a rock. It can't, like, swim around the rock because <laughs> I mean, it's an ocean. As far as making, as far as doing this kind of Moby Dick-esque, I alone survived to tell the tale, because yeah. that's a feature of Moby Dick. I mean, as far as doing that, I kind of wish that... Only Brody had survived. You know, the one guy who's scared of water, the guy who's an expert at catching sharks, and the guy who's an expert at oceanography. The shark got even them, but only Brody lived. Uh, 
And it also feels tacked on like it feels like a focus group came in and went. <laughs> we like that little fella. He was funny. The paper cup thing. Come on. Can't kill paper cup guy. So. All right, so that's one of my favorite uh, montages. And by the way, uh, I, I want to say when I was a, a kid, I distinctly remember getting the Jaws soundtrack and playing the music, and I had a, a, a broken-down old jungle gym in the backyard. It was just one, you know, it was a swing set and a slide or whatever, and it was kind of old and rusty. And I went out there one day, and I put on that particular track from Jaws, and I tore down that jungle gym and pretended I was building a shark cage while the music was playing. God, you're weird. I am. I know. That's. I was a kid. What are you going to do? Uh, Is that the weirdest thing you did as a kid? Uh, I want. I got kicked. Trying to make a flying bike. <laughs> That's good. I got kicked out of the 24. Cub Scouts okay. for uh, uh, cutting the sleeves off of my Cub Scout outfit to try to make it look like a SWAT uniform, like uh, a, SWAT, a SWAT vest kind of thing. Because I love that TV show SWAT, and I was like, I'm going to make my Cub Scout SWAT. I got kicked out. Yeah, yeah. There was a TV show called. SWAT. I love that you combine those two things, like Cub Scouts and SWAT, and then you got oh, anti-authority. <laughs> Boo. So how'd your flying bike work out, Mr. E.T.? Uh, I got a scar. Mm-hmm. And oh, was wait, that... uh... Huh? Oh, Jaws. Um, oh, never mind. <laughs> All right. Uh, Kelly Wan, let's go to your number two favorite montage, and how did you try to reenact it as a child? Uh, this one's dumb. But it's one I just... I just tried to go, all right, which, the way I come up with these lists is whichever ones I still remember after decades, uh, because I'm really annoyed about stuff that's still in my forebrain that's kind of useless, and a lot of shit I should remember I don't, uh, and I've reached that age where I forget entire blocks of my life, where I thought I was watching Ski Patrol ten years ago with my brother, but it was really Snowboard Academy. I think and we all have been there. Is, did you ever see the Vanilla Ice movie, Cool as Ice? No? Okay. Well, I'll just... I don't want to spoil too much about it, um, but he's a rapper, like a white rapper named Vanilla Ice, but he's, uh, you know, he's street, but he has this crush on the honors student girl, so he and tight their date together as they go to this house that's under construction in Winnetka <laughs> or somewhere. It's like this... It's just, it's some random construction site, basically, that Hesher would live in. And then um, there's a montage of them, like, like just wandering through these uh, corridors of lumber while really stupid fucking music plays. I love it. I also like the one in Breaking with the hand signs, but that's my number two. Cool as ice. Thank you. All right. Cool ass ice from Kelly Wand. Diggis, what is your number two choice for your favorite montage? Best biopic work. So it's Cool as Ice, not Snowboard Academy, right? Or Ski Patrol. Uh, okay, thank you, Tom. I just want to make sure. All right, my number, what are we on, number two? Number two, yes. <laughs> better better than funny people, but not as good as your number one. The cage is after the engine. I remember now, you're right, I'm a fool, so you don't have to, like, write, oh, yeah, Kelly's an idiot, because now I know. <laughs> oh, no, I, I was, the moment you said that, I was, like I mentioned, I was pondering. But I thought I went dying. I thought the engine dying was him dying. I got those two mixed up. I got the boat and the man confused. My apologies. Are you talking about the comedy Jaws again? <laughs> All right, Dingus, what is your number two choice? All right, this is a movie I don't think anybody else in the world likes but me, but it's called World's Greatest Dad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wait, 
And I thought Kelly was crazy with his cool as ice reference. Is it John Ritter? It's not. Robin it's, Williams. A, it's Robin Williams, directed by Bobcat Goldthwait. Oh, I kind of like it. Bobcat. I really oh. like this movie a lot. Um, and the montage in it is when uh, um, Robin Williams is very good in this movie, actually, and I'm not a Robin Williams fan. And he comes, uh, he's he's playing a single dad of uh, of his son, who's played by Daryl Sabara, who's really something of a douchebag, and um, and he's just a real jerk to his dad. And so his dad comes home and he finds. His son uh, has uh, accidentally killed himself, and so um, the uh, this, this happens about thirty minutes into the movie, so it's not that huge of a spoiler. It's it, it's it's a, it's a movie worth watching. But the the uh, montage that 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 develops, which is which is where the movie's going to go from there, uh, which is what uh, Rob Williams decides to do when he finds his son dead. Um, it's just a beautiful little montage, and it's it's um, a song I'd never heard before. It's this weird little song called "Don't Be Afraid You're Already Dead" by this group called Akron Slash Family. I don't know how you would say their name, but it's it's spelled Akron with a slash and then family. Um, I really love this montage. Uh, so there you go, world's yeah. greatest dad. That's weird. Mr. Mom has a really cool montage where Michael Keaton, um, to the Rocky theme, masters his vacuum cleaner, and he does it by using a remote control that makes it go into a room. Thanks for spoiling my number one. Oh. (laughs) Tom, listen to yourself. My number one is another montage featuring... (laughs) Yes? Featuring Roy Scheider. Ah, wait, wait. Blue Thunder. Marathon Man. (laughs) Blue Thunder. There's no montage. Naked Lunch. Uh, it's uh, the William Friedkin movie Sorcerer. Uh, and I like it even more than the Jaws montage because the Jaws montage, Jaws is a better movie. But Sorcerer is a great movie. But the Sorcerer montage, uh, the premise of Sorcerer is there's these guys that have come to uh, desperate straits. And they end up in a small, unnamed town in South America where the the... The main industry is there's an oil uh, company, and it runs a nearby oil well. Uh, and the oil well blows up, and there's a, an out-of-control fire burning, and they have to get this nitroglycerin to the fire to to, to blow up the well and, and, and shut it down. Uh, so it's about these men who agree to transport this nitroglycerin across a few miles of, of treacherous road to the oil fire. And there's a sequence where the four men and one mysterious assassin, you don't really know who he is, uh, he's watching from the shadows while the four men find and put together these trucks who are going to be every bit as much a character in the movie as, as the actual characters. Uh, and the montage has a Tangerine Dream soundtrack. It's a little dated, but I think it sounds great if uh, if you can put up with a little synthesizer soundtrack in your movies. Uh, but but I love it. I love it, but it, it's it's just weird. It's like weird watching Sorcerer and hearing Tangerine Dream. Uh, no it's a weird do that movie kind. without them. So they're perfect for it. Yeah. Well, I'm just so used to hearing that. But but this particular montage, it is. I and I'd forgotten how good it is. Uh, it's just. It, it's almost mythic in that it's 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 a combination of elements like sweat, grease, fire, light, metal, 
rain. It, it's just men fixing trucks. <laughs> it's just like so manly, and it's intercut with shots of the oil fire, like burning out of control, and this weird assassin dude watching from the shadows. Um, I just love that sequence in in Sorcerer. So that's my number one favorite montage from a movie is the uh, the finding and the fixing of the trucks in Sorcerer. And it's where, by the way, the two trucks get their name, uh, which figures into the movie. Um, I'm upset all three of yours aren't Scheider now. I know. I was, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Fitting on for a trifecta is an honor to him. I almost had to boot one of those, but I just I love both of those movies, and I love both of those montages. Marathon Man isn't montage, huh? Doesn't he? Does he maybe have a jogging montage early where you? He's not that guy. He's the other guy. He's the brother. Right, right, right. But Roy Scheider's in it. Uh, Roy Scheider's not in Marathon he's, Man for very long, if I'm not mistaken. No, but he's yeah. a spy. He's like a badass. He's How about, Gary Old. Maybe there's a, a montage in the Seven Ups. <laughs> the fuck you talking about? That's a, the Seven Ups is like French Connection Light, starring Roy Scheider instead of Gene Hackman. Uh, it has a great car chase, by the way. Uh, what year was it? I want to say right, or, well, it was right around French Connection. Uh, I doubt it predated it, though. Uh, you don't like it, even though it was... No, no, Seven Ups is fine. I mean, it's... 70s it's, for a Schneider movie. Yeah, you could have really gotten Kelly's goat if you'd chosen 2010. Is there a montage? Oh, oh because There's, of Roy Scheider. Right, very good, very good. Is it a montage when they go around the planet and he and Helen Mirren kind of spoon? Hot. Or is that a... Yeah, I know. Kelly, what is your number one favorite montage of all time in Moviedom? My number one... These aren't really good movies, and I don't really like these characters, but, uh, you know... Like, if it was if it was characters I have affection for, I'd go with the naked gun, even though the only part of that that's good is the platoon and the mustard. So my favorite number one montage is Harold and Kumar, the first one where he imagines he's married to a bag of weed, but then um, uh, later uh, domestic abuse ensues, but then they make up. <laughs> All right. That sounds, that sounds better than cool-ass ice, by the way. Well, cool size. Cool I know doesn't sound very good, but if you watch it, you'll see why. I I just can't get it out of my head. It's so stupid. It's just so. It's just I'm picturing them on the set filming it and thinking it's good, and I just can't. I just it just leaves me in shock. Kelly, one a lot of people did things in the '80s that they aren't proud of. I know, but it's like tons of people, like in like best boys, gaffers, producers, the director. I mean, it's just fucking. <laughs> but it's a good movie. Check it out. Right, yeah. As soon as you see Margin Call. <laughs> oh, you have to hard sell me on that. Yeah. Dingus, what is your number one montage of all time? All right, if I bring up the song, uh, a song by The Who called A Quick One While He's Away, what will you guys think of? I don't even know what that is. What, what is the song called? A Quick Tommy. One While He's Away? Tommy, yeah. the whole movie. And Margaret and Beans. I have no idea what song that is, Dingus. Would I like if you if I heard that song? Would I recognize it? Oh yeah, if the if the refrain from the song is "You are forgiven," I don't know that song. I'm not good at this game or any game. You are forgiven. Uh, oh, uh, 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 Schindler's List. Is it Unforgiven? Take <laughs> care. <laughs> uh, I have a feeling I don't. I would have to hear that song, Dingus. I don't really know the words. Do a line from it and then do a dance if a dance existed to go with the song. All right, here's the line from the movie. Why are all these bees in my hotel room? Oh, Max put them in here. Ha <laughs> ha. 
Oh, I should have known. <laughs> That's right. I meant to look, by the way, up. I, I haven't watched Darjeeling Limited in a while, but I got the, the Blu-ray of it. I meant to. I, I think there's a great montage in there, but I. There's a few. So uh, I'm assuming Max is the character from Rushmore. Yes, of course. It's it's a, a, the uh, the revenge sequence from um, Rushmore, where it, which starts with um, him dumping the bees into. Uh, Herman's hotel room and then Herman taking Max's bike and backing over it and then Max clipping Herman's brakes. It's this, it's this great montage with that, that Who song, A Quick One Miles Away, which, which sounds like You Are Forgiven. That was the shark jump moment of that movie for me. Because now it's murder. <laughs> now they're trying to kill each other and it's become uh, Neighbors with John Belushi. Uh, Although, well, yeah. Diggis, I don't know if you know this, but you can't use Rushmore for every single three by Yeah, three. fuck you. It's Wet Hot American Summer every list. God. Uh, any runners up? Uh, my only one is um, in Batman Forever, uh, the, the Joel Schumacher, the swishiest one. There's like a part where they put their bat suits on, and there's like a part where Val Kilmer like swings the bat suit around. It's like his butt and like. Just full. It's like that's the payoff, and then the music rises. Mm. It's John Williams. Uh, Dingus, I noticed you didn't mention uh, Luke and Yoda's training montage on Endor. That's not a montage, is it? I don't think they're on Endor, but nice try, Tom. Ah, I trolled you. And first of all, it's not even Endor; it's the moon of Endor. So uh-huh. you trolled yourself. <laughs> oh no! Why doesn't the moon have a name? That's stupid. <laughs> Uh, I love the uh, the sex scene montage of uh, Helena Bottom Carter and Brad Pitt in Fight Club. That bullet time uh, like sex scene. Uh, also in Dead Lit Now, the montage where they're having sex and then the clothes with the thing. And the- I don't know that that's a montage. That's gross anyway. I'm shocked neither of you brought up the um, the moment in Magnolia when when everybody's mouthing the song. The whole movie's a montage. That's like a musical number though. Yeah. A, every musical is a montage. I and by the way, act. are you speaking disparagingly of that scene, Dingus? Are you one of the people who doesn't like that in Magnolia? Uh, no, I'm greatly in love with it. But there's a lot of P.T. Anderson. I mean, there's Boogie Nights, too, but they didn't bring that up either. All right, well, let's do... Uh, you guys ready for next week's 3 by 3 Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. There we go. So we had a we had a 3 by 3 about scenes involving, uh, like, windows. Like, people... Scenes shot through glass, I think is what it was. This is kind of like that, uh, and it was inspired by a movie that we all were very fond of called Take Shelter. And these are scenes involving doors. There's a very pivotal scene in, in Take Shelter involving someone opening a door. So what I want from you guys, I'm taking that off the table, of course, uh, are your three favorite scenes involving doors. Preferably it's not just a scene you like where there happens to be a door in the background. Hopefully the door will figure prominently into the scene. But you should have lots of leeway to, to play around with this. When I thought of this topic, I was like, well, it's kind of narrow. There's not that many things. But as I thought about it, I was like, wow, there's there's a lot of door scenes. Uh, so there you go. Every so scene of the house. It, it, yeah, if you want to go look at it that way. Uh, but I have the, a question. Uh, yes, yeah, sir, yes. Does a Stargate count as a door? It's a portal. So I'll say no. And I, I want to take something else off the table for Angus here. Uh, the scene where the stormtrooper hits his head on the door, taking that <laughs> off the table. <laughs> All right. I don't know why that was so funny to me. It's so dumb. But 
I just I know Dingus was gonna win. I love it when Tom says Star Wars shit. <laughs> so when he, it's so late and dumb. So as long as you're not taking the Endor system off the table, I'm happy. <laughs> Uh, all right, so there you go. That's our three by three. Next week, next week we're going to do something a little different than normal. We normally see theatrical releases, but as was the case with many of the movies on our top ten lists, we would like to uh, occasionally acknowledge things that don't get a theatrical release. So that's what we're doing next week, so that we don't have to see this crappy horror movie that's opening and whatever else is coming out. Good movies uh, don't come out in theaters. That's not their function. You know, there are some things coming out later in January that I'm really psyched about. Next week, not so much. So instead, what we're going to do, next week, a movie is out now, actually, on Video On Demand, called The Innkeepers. Now, you might look at The Innkeepers and think, oh, that just looks like a crappy horror film. And for all we know, none of us have seen it yet, it may very well be a crappy horror film. But The Innkeepers does have sort of a claim to fame that I would like to point out briefly. It's directed by a fellow named Ty West. Now, you may not know his name. He did a, a weird little indie movie called The Shooter or The Shootist. Not The Shootist. That's, uh, the Shooter, I think, uh, which is weird, and I kind of recommend it. But I mostly recommend a horror movie he did called House of the Devil, which I love. It's weird. It's very 70s. It's different from other horror movies. It's not the kind of horror movie you get these days. Uh, but I loved House of the Devil. So The Innkeepers is the movie he just did. It's on video on demand. And uh, we hope you'll watch it so that you can join us next week when we will talk about that. And we will do our 3 by 3 of scenes involving doors. So uh, I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian. Hold on, let me go through my notes here. Jesus. M- Mulekowski, I think. It sounds right. It's, Christ- it's Christian Morosky. Uh, that's what I said. And also uh, Kelly Wand. Uh, reboot idea: Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls, but replace Karen Allen with Byron Allen, the black dude. <laughs> oh, sorry. I cut you off too soon. No, you didn't. Way too late, actually. About like four hours too late. Do you like this music, Kelly Bond? I do. Actually, I'm kind of grooving to it, the way I groove to the Silmarillion. <laughs> uh, this, I don't know if you guys know, that I picked this because it was one of the leading songs in 2011. This was on the top of the Billboard charts for six weeks. <laughs> Wait, wait, what is it? Why would you use call like Eddie Perry's firework? You know what, Dingus? Don't you guys didn't think of that. It was either that or something by some woman named Adele, or uh, there's a Lady Gaga song, which I'm bored by. Uh, oh, so it could have been worse. This is uh, Kelly Wan. This is, I, by golly, I paid 99 cents on iTunes for this. I'm going to use it. Uh, this is Party Rock Anthem by LMFAO. Oh, LMFO, of course. Yeah. I was I watching. You know, yeah. I was watching Grease with a, a girl recently, and I was bored. And I went at one point. Why don't they just sing songs about doing homework? It's <laughs> a good point. And getting uh, good grades and helping out the community. That's what real teenagers sing about. I like you. Ah, uh, I like you too. See how much fun we have? Five hours. Take that, people who listen to this.